This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. But he has, but he has so much to gain and has such an material Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 120. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khalid. And today, I suppose we are going to embark on a quest. A quest (laughs) that is also, I think, our second profile of a relatively infamous Nazi. Yeah. In fact, I really thought that this guy uh, who we're going to talk about, Adoran, his uh, story kind of was very similar to Martin Bormann's in some ways. Like, especially, like, in the end. Uh, Yeah. And there was actually some ambiguity about, like, whether, you know, it's someone who, did he really die, you know? Mm -hmm. Did he live, et cetera? Sure, sure, Uh, exactly. You know, and his method of death was similar, so. mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I think, through the person of, let's see, what was his rank? Don't want to get it wrong. (laughs) SS, SS Obersturmführer. Otto yeah. Ron, um, we're going to get into a topic that we we touched on a lot before from, you know, the very first episodes, which is the Ananerba, the occult uh, division of the SS that not just a, a, not just occult, but what was the translation of Ananerbe, like the Heritage Society or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Um a kind of archaeological occult investigative bureau of the SS that yeah. was very near and dear to Reichsfuhrer Heim- Heinrich Himmler's heart. I guess just means heritage, like ancestral heritage. Is, okay, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, ancestral heritage. It was like yeah. the ancestral heritage department of the yeah. SS. And, um, and Otto Rahn... Uh, became a part of it in the 1930s, uh, though he died basically right at, around the start of World War II and did not live to see the war or its aftermath or, you know, the downfall of the Nazis. But uh, particularly in the context of the Ananerba, you know, we've talked about Vevelsburg Castle, mm-hmm. the headquarters of the SS, which, you know, I think uh, most people remember from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino, going there in the early 80s in West Germany when he was Hayden NATO attache and yeah. doing a variety of Setian rituals to summon I don't know what in that castle. 
Mm-hmm. But to, he got a uh, a word, a, a, like an aeonic word, uh, uh, for like the order of the trapezoid. I'm trying to remember what what even was it. It was some kind of thing. Well, yeah, he got the ritual. Project Hammer. <laughs> yeah, like um, yeah, his Vevelsberg ritual like revealed like a new word that had to do with the order of the trapezoid. I want it. I think it was Valhalla. I'm pretty sure it was Valhalla. Um, Shocker. Huge yeah, shocker. There you go. Right. So he was like really into all the same shit that Otteron was into. Like yeah. the Grail myth is such a big part of uh especially like Nazi inflected esotericism. Mm-hmm. Uh largely due to the ideas of Otteron. Like yes. he was really a major intellectual force behind the SS. In fact, like uh we one of the documentaries that we watched for this, uh the Secret Glory by Richard Stanley, who is like a, a sus lord in his own right, as I was like somewhat surprised to discover. Like I had heard like sort of intimations of like how weird he was, but I didn't mm-hmm. really like, you know, fully appreciate it on that. But in that documentary, uh, he talks about how he actually had like a sweater with SS runes on it before there even was like an SS. Like his mom knitted Made him by like his a sweater. Mother. Yeah. Like Made with by his SS mother who on it. ultimately like, turned out to be Jewish. Yeah, I mean, I guess that he strange. just, like, loved, like, those runes and, like, lightning bolts or, what like, those symbols. So I feel like that's probably, like, you know, uh, he was into that stuff before the SS was into it. Um, or, like, you know, tangentially, like, he was, like, you know, or, uh, palling around with the Thule Society and everything. Yeah, so, or is it is it Thule? Thule? Uh, I think maybe. it's yeah. Thule. Yeah. I know we've said like, Thule Society uh, before. Thule. But. I think, you know, we're going by the can't bot pronunciation. Um, (laughs) That, yes, Trump is going to raise Thule and complete the system of German Uh, idealism. mm -hmm. Yeah. um, Well, if it's Tula, then we'll say Tula. Um, You know how these. uh, It's actually Thule. Thule, okay. Well, that's what expertwordtravel.com says. I feel like. Oh, because, you know, like Tula or Thule is like a Swedish company that sells, I don't know, like ski equipment or something. Mm-hmm. So that might not be <laughs> the Thule Society way of saying it, but I guess they speak German, Swiss German maybe. Ugh, I'm listening to this like Spanish guy talk for two minutes. I guess minutes. Thule is right. Yeah, Thule. It seems like it, yeah. I guess in Swedish it's Thule. Uh, Thule oh, wait, yeah, no, it, right, it, yeah. I think it is. It's it is a, the E is a, uh, the E is a schwa, so it's pronounced very softly, like the A in sofa. So yeah, mm-hmm. it is Tula. Okay. Okay. All right. All right we we'll got go with it. That. <laughs> We're going with Tula with Society. Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, who were the first people, right? To or it, it was a subgroup, maybe, of the Tula Society that first used the swastika. Wasn't it something called the like the Order of the New Templars? Actually, uh, I think who first that first used the swastika. I think that was associated with Karl Maria Villegut. AKA Weisthor. Yeah. Weisthor, the um, one time mental patient, later SS Brigadefuhrer, and chief runologist for Heinrich Himmler. Yes. Who I think um, definitely uh, Otto Rahn had some interactions with. But I forget if it was exactly him or it was kind of the order uh, or or circles he was running in. Actually, no, I think I was reading about our Ariosophy. Yeah, I guess he was in some kind of, like, Templar order, but... uh, Yeah, the Order of the New Templars was the first in... um, Wow, this is actually founded in 1900 and founded by Jörg Lons von Liebenfels, 
the code name of a fascist agitator, Adolf Joseph Lanz. That's who it was, Adolf Lanz, mm -hmm. I think, who was an Austrian occultist. And I forget exactly when the flag was designed, but you can see it's basically, it's a swastika. It's not tilted yet, but it is a very recognizable not red Nazi swastika on a green flag with four fleur-de-lis, um, mm -hmm. kind of creating like a diamond pattern. So, but anyways. Well, I, uh, but there probably was like even in antiquity, like usage of the swastika, because that's like a big thing for Otto Rahn too. Was, oh, like, Otto Rahn definitely Celtic is all about that. heritage, uh, like mm -hmm. Celtic Iberian heritage of Germans and everything. And like, like look at all this pottery from 2,000 years ago that yeah, has swastikas exactly. all over it kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, awesome, yeah. Yeah, exactly. it's a peace symbol, as everyone told me when I posted mm -hmm. like the Grateful Dead having swastikas in their sus movie. Um, uh, it's yes. a symbol of peace and love. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, right. Okay. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah like, and yeah, maybe uh, it was Schillerman's thing years was ago. that it's like connected to the you know, like Indo-Europeans, like the Indo-European yeah. sort of ethnogenesis, and he was like you know someone who was like a big excavator of like or searcher for. Troy, right? Oh, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that Didn't maybe he, he discover did, the ruins of Troy. I think he did actually find like the real Troy or that. And Otto Braun almost wanted to like be, he yeah. wanted to achieve that, but for uh, finding the, Lucifer's crown. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, finding, yeah. I mean, that's uh, yeah. mostly what we're talking about today is like the chief quest of Otto Braun's life is the quest for the Grail. Which, yeah. you know, I mean, who hasn't heard of the quest for the Holy Grail and all this yes. stuff? But I was actually surprised when we started going into this. I mean, we read two of his books, which were quite popular and, you know, well-known. Uh, the first was Crusade Against the Grail from 1933 and then Lucifer's Court from, I think, 1937. Yeah. And... You know, uh, Crusade Against the Grail was the book that literally brought him to the attention of Heinrich yes. Himmler and mm -hmm. led to him getting hired uh, and brought into the SS. But, like, I didn't know going into this that there is a whole lineage of myths about the Grail that kind of have nothing to do with what I always thought the Holy Grail myth was, because I guess I was like, I was probably anglo psyoped as a child and like learning about King Arthur and stuff like that. And even like, I mean, the, the pop culture artifact that's probably closest to all this is like Indiana Jones, right? Yeah. Like it's basically Who? all the bad guys are all always on an herba weirdos that are like trying to find the Ark of the Covenant or something like that. Yeah. And that's what they find in the, in Raiders of the Lost Ark is they find like the Ark uh, which is kind of similar. Well, don't they? I forget. They, no, they just open it up and then they all melt, right? They Sorry, all melt, spoiler. yeah. But spoiler, uh, yeah, I don't think there's any chalice they drink from that like kills them or well, something. Well, in the well, third, third Indiana one, Jones movie, they go hunt for the Holy Grail and like have to fight right. against Nazis. And it is like a cup in that. Like that. Yes. Yeah. Like we were kind of talking about before, like the whole idea that the Holy Grail is like a cup that Jesus drank from during the Last Supper is relatively new. Like, it was a marginal idea, like, in medieval times. Even, like, in Arthurian lore, that wasn't, like, necessarily the mainstream idea. It was thought of, like, as a relic associated with Jesus, but the idea yeah. of it as being, like, a holy chalice was, you know, not uh, dominant. Like, there are lots of other ideas about what it might be, mm -hmm. but it was, like, just something awesome that, like, you really wanted to get. Uh, I mean, I always, like yeah, I always associated it with basically that uh, finding the Holy Grail or drinking from it would give you uh, immortality, right? And mm -hmm. maybe like some <clears throat> some kind of transcendent wisdom. Yeah. And so 
it became this object of obsession and legend and stuff. Uh, but the way Otto Ron kind of lays out the legends around the Grail, and he focuses mostly on the like the myths of Parsifal, right? Yeah, well, uh, particularly on one uh, iteration of that myth, which is uh, Eisenbach's poem, yeah. Wolfram von Eisenbach, or mm-hmm. Eichenbach. I hope, again, I'm saying that right. I but it's Eisenbach, yeah. Yeah, he wrote uh, a poem, like, in the, I guess, uh, 13th century. I'm trying to say, like, when actually, like, it was written. Yeah, dated to the first quarter of the 13th century, starring, you know, Parsifal the Knight, uh, who is, like, on a grail quest. There's all sorts of weird aspects of this poem, but, yeah, it uh, does go into the grail. And the grail in that is kind of like a stone. Uh, let me, you know, this is not a bad place to kind of start, like, uh, to read some of this. So at one point, like, pretty late in the thing, Parsifal, much like, you know, I mean, I guess generally people assume it's the cop, so I don't know. But Parsifal, for a lot of the, the poem, doesn't really know what the grail is. He just knows that he's looking for it. <laughs> and then he comes across like a hermit, like a penitent hermit, and the hermit kind of explains to him what it is. Uh, and the hermit says, Full well do I know this, that many a knightly hand serveth the grail at Monsalvach, which is an important place. That's the like the sort of holy mountain where mm-hmm. the grail is. Serveth the grail at Monsalvach, and from thence throughout the land, on many a distant journey these gallant Templars fare, whether sorrow or joy befall them, for their sins they this penance bear. And this brotherhood so gallant, dost thou know what to them shall give, their life and their strength and their valor? Then know, by a stone they live. This is like a translation, of course, you know, it's in German, but, um, or, you know, medieval German, uh, I guess, middle high German or whatever. But mm-hmm. anyway, so it's a stone. And that stone is both pure and precious. Its name hast thou never heard? Men call it Lapis Exilis. Uh, so like exiled stone or expelled stone. By its magic, the wondrous bird, the phoenix, becometh ashes, and yet doth such virtue flow from the stone that afresh it rises renewed from the ashes glow. And the plumes uh, that erstwhile it molted spring forth yet more fair and bright. And though faint be the man and feeble, yet the day that his failing sight beholdeth the stone, he dies not, nor can, till eight days be gone, nor his countenance wax less youthful, if one daily behold that stone, if a man shall be, or a maiden tis the same, for a hundred years. If they look on its power, uh, their hair groweth not gray, and their face appears the same as when they first saw it, nor their flesh nor their bones shall fail, but young they abide forever, and this stone all men call the grail." And its holiest power and the highest shall I ween be renewed today. For ever upon Good Friday a messenger takes her way. From the height of the highest heaven a dove on her flight doth wing. And a host so white and holy she unto the stone doth bring. And she layeth it down upon it and white is the host the dove that her errand done swift wingeth her way to the heaven above. Thus, ever upon Good Friday doth it chance as I tell it to thee. And the stone from the host receiveth all good that on earth may be, of food or of drink. The earth bear it as the fullness of paradise, all wild things in wood or in water, and all that neath heaven flies. To that brotherhood they are given, a pledge of God's favor fair. For his servants he ever feedeth, and the grail for their needs doth care. And then, you know, he kind of later on, like, you know, he goes on about that for a while, but then he kind of explains what the actual provenance of it is, uh, which is that uh, they, the angels uh, who didn't take a part in the war in heaven, basically, uh, they, those angels were cast forth from heaven's height 
To the earth they came at God's bidding, and that wondrous stone did tend. Nor was it less pure for their service, yet their task found at last an end. I know not if God forgave them, or if they yet deeper fell. This one thing I know of a surety, what God doeth, he doeth well. But ever since then to this service, nor maiden nor knight shall fail. For God calleth them all as shall please him, and so standeth it with the grail. So, you know, pretty straightforward in terms of like the poem. It's like a stone from heaven that, you know, if you look on it, you're immortal. So kind of like what we were talking about, maybe it's like a meteorite, you know, the idea of stones from heaven having like holy properties is like a pretty widespread transcultural idea. What Otteron took from this basically is that this poem actually has like an esoteric meaning because it was actually dictated to him or to whoever dictated it to him at some point like, not too far than the chain of transmission, it came from, like, Cathar sages. That's the other, like, crux of his whole kind of uh, exploration of this idea. And it's a really interesting kind of tangent that he goes on, basically describing the history of the Cathars, who I was vaguely aware of, but he does give a pretty detailed rundown, I guess, at I mean, there probably are better, like, academic sources yeah. that aren't written by, like, SS officers. But Yeah, who are, like, uh, kind said, of nuts. Um, yeah, who are yeah. kind of insane. Um, um, but, but he, like, he loves um, this kind of mysterious civilization that was, I think we can all agree, uh, pretty much genocided by the Catholic Church in a crusade at the end of the 13th century, right? Yeah, I mean, if we go by, like, certain accounts, I feel like... A lot of people do say that, like, Catharism was kind of, like, a construct in a way, in the way that, like, maybe you could say, like, witchcraft is in certain ways. You know, obvious, like, uh, obviously many different forms of witchcraft, but I feel like the idea of Catharism that we have mostly comes from, in a lot, of, like, as it is with many heresies, it comes from, like, heresiographers. Yeah. So, like, you know, our image of it, like, is still kind of imperfect. Again, like, we didn't read an academic, like, study of Catharism or what it even was. We just read this one guy's, like maniacal writings which like you know which which uh, kind of like veer very loosely between mythological history and quote-unquote real history almost like without distinguishing between the two yeah he doesn't seem to observe a difference between them like (laughs) there is a distinction between so in crusade against the grail which is like the book that as you said like brought him to uh himmler's attention there's actually like a pretty good bio of Adoran, like, up to, you know, uh, in the sort of intro. But by the way, like, both of these books, I feel like, were, like, uh, published under, like, sus circumstances where, like, in the acknowledgments, there were, like, Nazis or, like, neo-fascists or something. It's, like, kind of weird. But, you know, we didn't buy them from the presses, so uh, it's fine. But um, anyway, so, yeah, there's actually, like, a decent, I think, in Crusade Against the Grail, he gives, like, a a decent, like, rundown of, like, how, you know, who Otteron was, how it came, you know, uh, to know Himmler and everything. So Otto Wilhelm Rahn was born in 1904 in Mitchellstad in the German state of Hesse, an area brimming with tales of medieval chivalry. Rahn's father, Karl, introduced his son to the legends of Parsifal, Lonegrin, and naturally Siegfried in the Nibelungenlide, sorry, uh, Nibelungenlide, I guess the ring, you know, uh, during their walks uh, in the Odenwald forest. Uh, Ron later explained, my ancestors were pagans, my grandparents were heretics. His family's home was not far from Marburg, uh, Amlan, where the insidious inquisitor Conrad had terrorized the court of Longgrave of uh, Thuringia in the 13th century. 
Ron Long considered writing a historical novel about the Maggie Stare, who was responsible for, among other things, beating the Landgrave's wife, later St. Elizabeth of Hungary, to death, and burning hundreds of Thurman Cathars at the stake before a group of knights killed him. Ron's favorite professor, Baron von Gall, a lecturer in theology at the University of Gleisen, greatly impressed him with his descriptions of the tragedy of Catharism. Ron wrote, wrote, It was a subject that completely captivated me. After obtaining his bachelor's degree in 1922 and pursuing further studies at the universities of Heidelberg, Geisen, and Friedberg, Ron was free uh, to begin his travels abroad. When a French family invited him to visit Geneva in 1931, he gravitated to the French Pyrenees to begin his own investigations. Before leaving for the south of France, Ron asked a Swiss friend, Paul Alexis Ladam, to accompany him because Ladam had some experience in speleology and mountaineering. Uh, again, all these people like love alpinism, but anyway, that's besides the point. That he guy was, also was Swiss. Uh, yeah, he to was. Be fair. Right. They uh, love Yes, they do. True. And it seemed like uh, he actually was in the Richard Stanley documentary, Paul Ladum, and he kind of seemed like a little bit in denial about like Adoran being a Nazi. But to be fair, Adoran did, I guess, help him get out of Germany when he was suspected of being a spy for like drawing cartoons of prominent Nazis. Mm -hmm. So I guess he kind of like owed him a borderline life debt. So, uh, you know, I guess I don't begrudge him like still thinking that Aron was like, you know, uh, uh, having a, a sanguine view of him maybe. But I mean, he was a complex guy. But anyway, he was also descended from an old Cathar family, the name originally La Dama, that escaped from Beziers uh, to Switzerland during the crusade. We owe a lot to him. Long after his friend's death, that is, Ladam was descended from a Cathar family. Mm -hmm. Long after his friend's death, Ladam wrote down his vital recollections of Ron and their Pyrenean explorations in several entertaining works. His last work, Quand le Laurier uh, Riverdira, recalled the Cathar adage, In 700 years when the laurel grows green again, the final words of the last Cathar perfectus, uh, Gilhelm de Belebaste, before he was burned alive. Accompanied at times by Ron's friend and mentor, Antonin Gadal, they conducted extensive explorations of the Montsegur area. Uh, that's, you know, the cathedral Montsegur that people associated with that uh, grail sacred mountain that I mentioned from Parsifal, and Ron mm -hmm. associated it, I should say. In the grottoes of the Savars, they were thunderstruck when they visited a huge cavern called the Cathedral by the locals. In it were a large stalagmite called the Altar and another known as the, term of the Tomb of Hercules. Uh, the forest around the legendary castle of uh, Munchsalvache was called uh, Brickjlan. Near Montsegur is a small forest called the Priscillian Wood. As evidence accumulated, the Wagnerian mists cleared. Wolfram had based his story on fact. Ron confidently proclaimed that the fortress castle of Montsegur and the French Pyrenees was the Temple of the Grail, that the mystical Cathar Christianity, based on the veneration of the Holy Spirit as symbolized by Mani, was the Church of the Holy Grail. The gates of Lucifer's kingdom had been thrown open. The result was the crusade against the Grail. Soon, the book came to the attention of the leaders of the Third Reich. According to the Ladam, Ron explained that he had received a mysterious telegram while he was in Paris. As usual, he was depressed because he was having difficulty finding backers for a French translation of Crusade. The person who wrote the telegram did not give his name, but offered Ron uh, 1,000 Reichsmarks per month to write a sequel to the book. A little later, money was wired to Paris so that he could settle his affairs in France and return to Germany to a specific address in Berlin. Seven, Prinz uh, Albrechtstrasse. When Ron finally turned up, he was shocked to learn the telegram sender was none other than Heinrich Himmler. The head of the SS welcomed him personally and invited the young author to join the SS as a civilian historian and archaeologist. Ron later told Ladam, what was I supposed to do? Turn him down? Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. other people say that he was actually quite proud of being 
in the SS. There was that one story from Richard Stanley's documentary where he like was seated at like some dinner, mm -hmm. uh, like at sort of like a, you know, uh, an ignominious or not prestigious enough table. And he saw like a normal Wehrmacht officer, like at like a more illustrious table. And he like got super raged out and like started a fight with him. So <laughs> yeah. Another know. time he saw an SS officer like cavorting with like women and being drunk in uniform. And he walked up and he's like, you're a disgrace to like our order. Like stop. <laughs> get a hold of yourself yeah uh, so yeah i think he was uh at time he got he got a little power drunk i think when he got that that should stuff you know little lapel on his uniform yeah. and stuff and uh he changed <laughs> i well i mean i don't know yeah, he changed I mean, so much but he got sucked into this this world again he seems like a bit scattered but certainly like so you know he might have had facets to him that were like not so much of like a frothing nazi but he definitely had a lot of facets that were a frothing mm -hmm. nazi and like all about like aryans and like the superiority of like arianism like aryans and yes. like the german bloodline uh, just a, yes. like, you know, actually, I just noticed in the paragraph following this that uh, it's just a side note. I highlighted, um, I highlighted, I yeah, highlighted yeah, this whole um, thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, in an effort aimed at reinforcing national socialist ideology, the SS was organizing expeditions all over the globe to trace the origins of the Indo-Europeans. Dr. Ernst Schaefer led a famous German Himalayan expedition to prove that Tibet was the cradle of the Arya and to investigate the legend of the abominable snowman. <laughs> uh, Bigfoot there connection there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then they talk about Vistor and how he was the lord of, of runology for Himmler, etc. Um, yeah. Yeah, they went to Iceland and looked for Tula. Tula. Yes, uh, that's a big part of his uh, subsequent book, the uh, Lucifer's Court. And there is like kind of, yeah, it's kind of important to mention, I guess, the sort of intellectual uh, journey, for lack of a better term, that like he goes on, like because the uh, Crusade Against the Grail is a bit more straightforward maybe like a bit more a uh, professional perhaps like whereas it doesn't uh, scream like it, it doesn't quite scream nazi though you can definitely clock <laughs> certain aspects that would be appealing to somebody like himmler or like yeah. oh i could use this but then the second one because it's it sort of arranges his diaries as he's traveling the world yeah. as an ss archaeologist are very like free association rambling kind of jumping all over the place and I don't yes. know. A little yes, more manic. Yes, I definitely would describe it as more manic. And yeah, it basically is like a travelogger diary, uh, including of his travels to, to Iceland. But yeah, like and a thing a theme that sort of becomes more prominent in Lucifer's court. So it's weird because the Cathars basically, as he describes them, were just sort of like Gnostic type dualists who basically believed like that the god of the old testament was like a demiurge. And yeah, like you know, he was evil. I, yeah, I don't know if they use the term yelled about. You're right, not by yeah. name, but but the yeah. one who is called Jehovah in yeah, the Old he's Testament. evil, and he's the god of this world. He created this world, and like you know, the real god is like pure light, and he doesn't mm -hmm. have anything to do with like this world per se. Uh, you know, it's a typical like uh, sharp mind, body, or spirit body distinction that is part of a lot of sort of Gnostic tendencies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically their thing is like they're still like very anti. You've, you know, anti-Satan, they associate Satan basically with Jehovah, which you can definitely yeah. see how that would be appealing to Himmler. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, but Adoran, especially in Lucifer's court, brings in this whole other element that's like doesn't seem to have anything to do with Cathars at all. And it's yeah. just about how like I guess the the sort of the logic of it almost is that in his mind, the Cathars are 
like their origins are in druids who sort of worshipped like a light being who like, you know, became processed by uh, the rest of the world as Apollo, pretty much mm-hmm. like a light bearer. Yeah. So from that sort of jumping off point, basically the idea of God as being like pure light, not having to do with the world, then he somehow turns things around where like actually Lucifer, the light bearer, is good and like the, you know, God of both Christianity and or both the New Testament and the Old Testament are bad and the Holy Grail is Lucifer's crown. Or it's a jewel. It's a piece of, it's a stone from his yeah, diadem. Yeah, a stone from his diadem, Earth. correct. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and you know, we, it's, that's it's funny. and we must get it. It's <laughs> like, funny how often we're, we're seeing this idea pop up, usually seemingly out of nowhere. You know, we saw it with the Urantia people and all those yeah. sus Kelloggs. We saw it with Rael, where they draw a distinction between Lucifer and Satan and almost always, I believe the Urantians believed in this too, like Lucifer's actually a good guy and yeah. Satan, the devil, is bad. And uh, and sometimes there is like a higher God above them that is sort of almost like Allah, like the God of gods, you know, who's like pure light, pure love, et cetera, yeah. nothing bad whatsoever. And it's just interesting because like you said, the you know we'll get into the actual beliefs of the cathars but they did not like worship lucifer <laughs> no they didn't they were just more like you know actually there were like some like gnostic orphic tendencies that like did try to like redeem the serpent or say that this you know the serpent or even the devil like or the devil devil usually is a is a term that's negatively charged but lucifer perhaps like under that name like there were gnostic currents like that but like by Adoran's own account that does not seem to have been the case of the cathars that is like something that he like innovated kind of like kind of jumping off of them saying like you were right about all this stuff but don't you realize that the good god is like really lucifer which is like like, why yeah yeah, it gets even more complicated because uh, like multiple times i feel like throughout crusade against the grail he casts the forces of the catholic church or like the crusader armies as like i forget if he literally calls them the armies of lucifer or the armies of satan but like he uses that terminology to describe the catholic church which is like kind of the classical it's the connotation we would normally associate with calling somebody luciferian or satanic is like they're evil they're bad and he definitely lays out a strong case uh regardless what you think about auto run he lays out a strong (laughs) case that there definitely was some satanic shit going on in the catholic within the catholic hierarchy in that time and even like regardless of whether or not you feel like the cathar's beliefs were heretical the catholic church's response which was um to slaughter like a million like a million people perhaps like up Mm -hmm. to a million people like men women and children burn them alive etc and then then of course like you know we even just talked our v episode about like the hypocrisy of the uh, the orthodox priesthood and how they were held in such low regard in russia by like the peasantry and Mm -hmm. a lot of similar things coming through in this when he describes how in this region of like the Pyrenees and uh, Occitania that the, the locals like held most of the priesthood in very, very low regard because of their, like, I think he says at one point, like their fat bellies and like their venal ways and like (laughs) their rampant corruption. And they couldn't even go out dressed up in their, their priestly frocks or outfits because they get jeered and mocked by like 
the townspeople and shit. So they definitely like, disguise themselves as civilians and all these things. And like compared to the bonshomme, uh, the sort of priesthood, uh, the alleged you know priesthood of the Cathars, uh, who were very highly revered and respected and lived very, I would say you know Christ-like kind of lives in terms of mm-hmm. assuming a, like a really taking the vow of poverty and a kind of ascetic existence yeah. um, much more seriously than the Catholic priesthood. Um, mm-hmm. And also abstain, a big thing for them is abstaining from carnal physical pleasures. So yeah. this was like a, a basically a completely Valsell kind of priesthood. Not necessarily it's adhere- it, and also vegan, I believe as well. Yeah, I don't veg- think they, I think they were vegetarian or they ate, yeah, something I like mean, that. I don't uh, know if they touched dairy or uh, or eggs, but hmm. they were at least vegetarian. They didn't believe in killing animals, not even yeah. insects, basically. And they also did not believe in war or like violence under kind of any circumstances. So, yeah. I mean, it's interesting how little people know about that, given that, you know, the huge consequences of like the Protestant Reformation a few hundred years later and how we're still kind of living with that today where people did, entire regions did sort of revolt from Rome, you know, later. But it's not like Martin Luther like going and like he was being the change he wanted to see in the world and just like nailed some theses to a thing and that's why all this shit started. It's like, well, no, there were a lot of, you know, not even to get into like early Christianity, but even in the, the, the early medieval, you know, kind of period here, you have entire regions that are basically threatening to like completely reject like the catechism of Rome and the authority of Rome. Yeah like a deep ontological way. Like, I mean, this was kind of an ontological revolution within, you know, European Christendom. And I mean, there are some ideas within it that sound kind of progressive for their time. There are other aspects that, like, I always feel this about Christian Gnosticism. It's like, there's some things that I'm like, oh yeah, no, that seems like there's, there's some real like deep truth there. But then they always have like weird other things about how, like, that's why, like, nobody can have sex and, like, uh, we all should just exterminate ourselves and, like, completely, like, the, go live in an ashram or something like that. Like Yeah, that's, like, yeah, it's kind of, like, radicalism in a way where, like, there's usually, like, good aspects to it, like, because they're just, like, going deep to, like, the roots of things and just, like, starting from scratch. Uh, so they, like, come up with some good things, too, but, like, they also come up with, like, uh, crazy shit sometimes, like... Uh, you know, like the the Kharijis, like in Islam, they had like a lot of ideas that were good, or like, uh, but they also had like insane ideas. A lot, didn't like not all their ideas were totally crazy. Um, but you know, the famous like quote unquote exaggerators who would you know kind of exaggerate the importance of of Ali, sort of the you know like super extreme Shia. Like, but mm-hmm. some of their ideas like were kind of interesting and later in some form resemble things that even uh you know orthodox cynicism would start to kind of talk about but um yeah, yeah. according to wikipedia I, I, which cites some scholars they this is what they say about their diet they ate a pescatarian diet but you're right they did not eat cheese eggs meat or milk because these are all byproducts of sexual intercourse so they believed that animals were carriers of reincarnated souls another thing they believed in metempsychosis which is like a 
common feature, I think, of like a lot of these sort of heretical sects. Like that's a common thing, I feel like, in, in Islam as well. Like as I was just talking about, there's a lot of groups. They often believe in metempsychosis too. Metempsycho, um, can you define metempsychosis? Just like uh, transmigration of the soul, oh, okay. reincarnation, you know. Into okay, a yeah, body. reincarnation. Yeah. yeah, there was some speculation, I, I think it's never really been like nailed down that, oh, like Buddhist ideas somehow traveled to this region and were kind of adopted by the local Christians and kind of incorporated. And though I think at this point there were people who, they, they have found old like Buddhist like artifacts and things like that, like that are quite old because, you know, it's close to the Mediterranean and there was yeah. trade and all that stuff. But it doesn't seem like, oh, they just like took Buddhism and like did that. It seems, yeah. I mean, I mean Otto Ron thinks they were tapping into like much, much older, almost like Druidic traditions and yeah, blending like them with Aryan like knowledge which I guess would yeah make uh sense if like they were connected in some way to like India like through their like bloodline or whatever that they might but I think that actually like you know that idea is an idea that like a lot of for lack of a better term like heretical or heterodox groups within Abrahamic religions actually had like I you know there's definitely Islamic examples and in fact like even even like much much later on than we're talking about uh, with the Cathars, um, you know there was the idea of Baruts or like that either there could, which I think uh, Ahmadis today believe in like that. Uh, that's why uh, like they claim to believe in Muhammad as the last prophet, but also like uh, Mirza Ghulam is like a prophet too, you know, because he's like a projection, you know, sort of there's a sort of transmigration of the soul happening. So there definitely like was an idea like a, a concept of that. And there, there is an interesting, I did notice an interesting sort of, you know, this is a, a bit of a tangent, but there is like a, a lot of speculation about because of the sort of connection to the Crusades and the whole like quest for the grail that's linked to that and the sort of, uh, uh, even in uh, Parseval, there's a character, the poem Parseval, there's a character called like Fierfez or something, I think. Yeah, Fierfez or Fierfez, who is like the brother of the main character, the half-brother because his father had an earlier marriage to, like, a Moorish queen when he, like, sort of was in, in Baghdad. He's actually, I think his name actually means, like, the checkered one or something because he's, like, biracial, but the interpretation of that is that he has, like, you know, spots or something on him where he's, like, half, like, literally, like, he has, like, checkered skin somehow. Uh. But anyway, so, yeah, like, the idea, like, uh, and they team up, and then eventually he converts to Christianity, and then he goes back to the East, and he becomes, like, his, like, ancestry or his descendants become Prester John, you know, the, the mythical Eastern king who will, like, eventually rise up and, like, do a pincer attack on Muslims to destroy them or whatever, uh, you know, but um, okay. anyway, so there is that kind of connection. I did notice in some of, you know, to e Eastern wisdom or to the, the world of Islam, and I did notice some references to it in uh, Adoran's work, like even in uh, Crusade Against the Grail, he mentions that Saladin had like had some kind of plan with Richard the Lionheart where yeah, they were going to have a, a marriage a of houses. Yeah, exactly. They were going to actually based, intermarry. Honestly. Yeah, that would have been based. But it had the Pope shut it down. Like no, the Pope, yeah, Pope totally Innocent had, like destroyed Pope it. Pope right? Innocent Third. We're going to get into him. <laughs> what a sicko. Yeah. What a fucking sicko. All these Pope, I mean, some of the, like Urban the Fifth, Benedict the Twelfth. I mean, these guys are like, like, uh, out of a horror yeah. movie like they're they're, they're so evil, evil. 
Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I mean, the evidence he cites is like, I think, pretty widely accepted. He, I don't think he's like making up slanders against them, but they just No, these were like the era of like the high crusader popes. Like Urban was especially evil. Um, They're yeah, all from like noble Italian, like merchant families from like, you know, Genoa or like Venice or something yeah. like that. Like they're extremely wealthy. Speaking of that, I thought one interesting element of all of this that uh, Ron like starts off with is talking about like the the troubadours, you know, and everybody knows that name. I just recommended the venue. Coincidence? I don't know. You know, in Los Angeles called the Troubadour. But yeah. and I think we think, oh yeah, Troubadour is kind of like a traveling, like medieval guy, like sings songs, kind of like a bard. Yeah. Courtly and, love. Yeah. Uh, but he really he he has a whole theory that most of the troubadours, particularly in this region, were like secret agents of like <laughs> the Cathar religion and all yeah. of their songs, particularly their love songs, which are always dedicated to like an unnamed lady, were like crypto peons to basically uh, I think what he calls the mina. Right. Yeah. The, the Mina. So I, I just want to read a little passage here because he introduces both the Cathars and the Troubadours. And, and there's some interesting anecdotes in here that kind of blur the line between like like legend and reality. But uh, he says between Alpine glaciers and the sunbaked Pyrenees from the vineyards of the Loire Valley to the paradisal terrace gardens of the Côte d'Azur and the Côte Vermeille. A brilliant civilization developed at the beginning of our millennium, genteel and filled with spirit, where poetry and the mine, the ideal love, sublime love, were law. It is said that these laws, la le d'amour, the laws of the mine, were given to the first troubadour by a hawk that sat on a branch of a golden oak tree. The le d'amour contained 31 statutes. The oddity was that they established as a basic principle that the mina should exclude carnal love or marriage. It was the union between souls and between hearts. Marriage is the union of two physical bodies. With marriage, Mina and poetry die. Love by itself is only passion that disappears with sensual pleasure. He who keeps the authentic Mina in his heart does not desire the body of his loved one, only her heart. The real Mina is pure love without embodiment. The Mina is not simply love. Eros is not sex. The troubadours called the Minedinst, or devotion to love, an homage rendered to grace and beauty, uh, domne, from Domina, lady. Domne, provoked in the Domneger, servant of the Mine, the joy d'amour, desire, energy, and impetuousness that led the poet to create the Mine. The poet who composed the most beautiful Mine leader was the winner. Now, just moving on here, because this is interesting also about some of the class differences between northern and southern France at that time that are kind of intertangled with all this and even gets into kind of like Mortmain and like the you know, protecting the the idea of nobility. So Ron writes, in the north of France, even more so in Italy, and above all in Germany, a knight knew no other home than the armory, the tournament, and the field of battle. In these countries, knighthood was inconceivable without nobility. Only a noble who could leave for war on his steed and his armed horsemen were considered true knights. By contrast, chivalry and Occitania, that's the whole Cathar region, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. was at home in the mountains and forests. Any burgher or peasant could become a knight, a chevalier, if he was valiant and loyal or knew how to compose poetry. The attributes of Occitan knighthood, accessible to anyone, were nothing other than the sword, the word, and the harp. A peasant who dominated the spoken word was raised to the category of noble, and the artisan poet was consecrated a knight. Troubadour Arnaud de Moreau came from a modest family. 
He was, a, he was first a scribe and later a poet in the court of the Viscount of Carcassonne and Béziers. He once wrote, A well-born man should be an excellent warrior and a generous host. He should attach great importance to good armor, chosen elegance, and courtesy. The more virtues a noble possesses, a better knight he will be. But also burghers can aspire to chivalrous virtues. Although they may not be nobles by birth, they can become so, nevertheless, through their behavior. At any rate, there is a virtue that all nobles and burghers should possess, loyalty. Who is poor can supplement his lack of economic means with courteous language and gallantry. But he who knows nothing of doing and saying does not merit any consideration and is not worthy of my verses. Whether of high birth or modest parentage, anyone could aspire to become a knight under the condition that he be a valiant and loyal, or a, that he be a valiant and loyal, or a poet and servant of the mina. Cowards and the foul mouth were unworthy of chivalry. Their palfrey was their burden. So then he quotes like a troubadour talking about how to get the ladies. Um, you should be an expert in everything so that his lady should never discover a single defect in him in the same way. Try to please the acquaintances of your lady so that only good things are told to her about you. This is a big influence on the heart. If your lady should receive you, do not embarrass her by confessing that she has robbed your heart. If she accedes to your desires, do not tell anyone. Better lament to all that you've achieved nothing because ladies cannot stand indiscreet fools. Now you know how to open your path in life and how to please the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> that's honestly better advice than like any MRA like forum or, you know what I mean like uh, yeah it's like uh, don't run your mouth like don't spill your guts in the DMs like just be cool and uh, yeah anyways True. so don't okay the, 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 um, the, the one thing I, I just want to mention from uh, this section is just like an example of uh, troubadours like and uh, the way that um, the nobility would behave in this region because I found this story I think it's real. I think I looked it up and it, it it's a very popular legend that it happened. So there was uh, in this region, um, I think in Auvergne, uh, Guillaume de Cabestan came from the Roussillon, a region that borders the, with Catalonia and includes the area around Narbonne. He had a distinguished bearing and was well-versed in weapons, chivalry, and pleasing the ladies. In his homeland, there was a lady named Donna Saramanda who was young, happy, noble, and quite beautiful. She was the wife of Raimundo del Castel Rossello, a powerful, evil, violent, rich, and proud lord. Guillaume de Cabestan was crazily in love with her, and this rumor finally came to the attention of Raimundo. An irate and jealous man, he had his wife watch day and night. One day, when he met Guillaume de Cabestan alone, he killed him, tore out his heart, and chopped off his head. He then ordered his servants to roast the heart, prepare it in pepper sauce, and serve it to his wife. After the meal, he asked, do you know what you've just eaten? <laughs> she replied, no, but it was delicious. Then he told her that she had just eaten the heart of Guillaume, and as proof, he showed her the troubadour's head. When she saw it, she fainted. When she regained consciousness, she said, the meat that you prepared for me was so excellent, Lord, that I will never eat anything again. Then she ran to the balcony and threw herself to her death. So I guess the rumors of that, <laughs> that Raimondo del Castel Rosella had given the heart of his wife to eat, spread like a wildfire throughout Catalonia and the Roussillon. Mourning and grief spread everywhere. Complaints were lodged with the king of Aragon, Raimundo's lord. The king hurried to Perpignan, where he summoned Raimundo, arrested him on the spot, confiscated all his goods, and threw him into the deepest dungeon. The bodies of Guillaume and his lady were brought to Perpignan and buried before the main door of the church. It is possible to read about their unhappy end on the gravestone. All knights and their ladies of the county of Roussillon were ordered to make a pilgrimage once a year to this place to celebrate the funeral. 
Yeah. So yeah. that's some sicko shit. Um, that definitely is uh, some sicko shit. Um, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't think he's related to the, the Raimondo, the Lord Raimondos that were Cathars, right? Or was he? Um, the uh, Raimondo the, del Castel Rossello, the guy who uh, fed I don't the heart. Call it what he? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I would assume not. If that story is being told by Adoran, that he would not want to associate them. So it would probably be uh, probably not. Yeah, I would. But that I mean that that's the yeah. first of many instances in this book of just absolute sicko torture and like terror. Though later it's like mostly done by people. Um, by the inquisitors basically of the catholic church so yeah i mean yeah. it's interesting yeah like a lot of people i actually have my uh futuat name uh sultani like right uh on my table so maybe i'll read like some of it later but it is interesting like how i mean people have like definitely made the connection between like chivalry and the west and futuat or like a you know uh, sort of uh, chival like might be called chivalry like in the islamic world is like a you know, that there's like some kind of exchange that happens there. And I mean, uh, like in terms of Sufism, you definitely see like the overlap, like the idea of like uh, love, like as an ideal, like uh, ishk would be, would be like what it was called, uh, you know, is like a major theme and like Sufi poetry, really, especially even like the idea of like uh, the sort of uh, blurring between like a, a, a material lover and, and God. I mean, you know, that's probably a common theme uh, in sort of esoteric poetry, but it still sticks out yeah. in the idea of like poverty is a virtue, like the, the Fokker, obviously that's a thing in Christianity as well. But um, yeah. Oh, before I move on, I just want to say that uh, the reason why the Cathars could eat fish apparently is because they believe that fish just like spontaneously generated in the water and we're not. It's the okay to eat fish because they don't have any feelings. Wow. Damn. Uh, yes, they knew about that. But <laughs> anyway, so um, this is actually a good... Oh, sorry. What, yeah. Um, well, I, I just also just wanted to point out like a weird, interesting contrast with like the asceticism is that anybody could become a knight and it wasn't completely dominated by hereditary nobility, which yeah. is a thing that I think was eventually wiped out along with the Cathar heresies was that anybody could and they talk later about how there was almost like a demo like a semi-democratic form of government in a lot of these cities and like it much to the rage of the pope uh some of the lords i think like nominated jews to be like oh right have yeah. like cabinet level that was positions a weird aspect of this because he's kind of anti-semitic especially on lucifer's court well yeah whereas in this he actually like a sticking point is that certain like in the cathar communities like jews had like you know major roles in politics or in and protection you know, and equal the, rights and all these yeah. things so uh, very progressive and like very not nazi you know of yeah them. So again it's like a partisan account but i mean like it, it, no matter like what the reality is i feel like the catholics were definitely in the wrong and i mean that it almost seems like for them like knighthood was more about like a you know a spiritual station or something rather than like political office like that it became uh totally. and that was like totally. sort of the contestation over it but uh relative to what i, I was just saying this is actually like a, an interesting part in general that like is one of the i think one of the best or the most like revealing parts of lucifer's court where Adoran is on a southern german countryside and uh he has like this sort of hallucinatory conversation with like a ghostly cathar and some interesting things come up so he says it is summer and i am again on german soil wandering on german roads and sleeping under german roofs 
My soul echoes with the Tandara Day by Walter von Vogelweid. <laughs> I will spend tonight in Tübingen, where uh, Holderin lived, and uh, sorry, Holderlin lived, and su- suffered and wrote poetry. The people there honored him with a gate, but he struck Apollo. Sitting in the shade of an apple tree, I have to squint through its branches and twigs at the sky. Bees, wasps, and mosquitoes buzz and crickets chirp. A lark rises jubilantly in the light. Now I take a pen and paper from my backpack. Who chides my writing? I must do it, because only I can speak my language. Who thinks ill of me because I compose? I must do it, because the urge to write poetry wells up within me. One after another, the spirits of those of the 12th and 13th centuries file past me on the road. What is your name, I ask a man. He is no longer young. His hair is gray and his cheeks are pale. He wears a long black tunic, dusty and frayed at the seams, but his step is springy. I am Bertrand from the land of Foix, he says. Where are you going? To the Rhine and beyond, he answers simply. Are you a heretic? I am one, he says. The man looks at me. I ask him, are you fleeing from someone? I am a fadit and I must flee the Roman Catholics. I offer, I know your homeland. He says, perhaps, but you don't know it as I do. The man continues to speak to me in my language. I was a knight. You once drove past the ruins of my castle without looking up because you were reading a book. You should read less and look and listen more. My castle stood near Foix on a hill in view of Montségur. While I was afar, my brother and his wife and children were burned in the Inquisition. I celebrated the winter solstice on the heights of Ornelach, near that underground church you saw in the Pyrenees, at Mount Lujat in the pathway of the Cathars. We call this celebration Nadal, Christmas. I stop him and ask, Have you commemorated devotion and celebration the birth of Jesus of Nazareth? No, the birth of the redeeming son. Some of us called him Christ, as the pre-Christian Greeks already referred to him. Jesus is not Christ. He was a Jewish sectarian whose disciples proclaimed him like the son-like savior only after his death. The early Christian bishop, Melito, could rightfully say that the teachings of Christ are not a revealed religion, but rather a philosophy that was first avowed only by the barbarians. Under the Roman emperor did it begin to spread in a modified form, developing in lockstep with the growth of the Roman Empire. So, you know, this Cathar at this point, you know, this is from Lucifer's Court, so at this point he's just kind of like saying Otto Ron's own ideas, but it's, yeah, interesting how it's kind of transformed. But, yeah, I then asked, In other words, both Jerusalem and Rome acquired the teachings of Christ and changed them for their own purposes? Yes, but the teachings of earthly life and death upon the cross of Jesus Christ are contrary to God. Why are they contrary to God? It is contrary to God to visualize divinity as a man. True. Uh, What is God? God is spirit and light and strength. Is there also an anti-God? Yes, it is weakness, which shows in humans as falsehood and doubt. It is also the spirit of lawlessness and destruction. If, if that is so, isn't Lucifer, who you call Lucibel, the devil? Lucifer is nature, as you see it in you, around you, and above you. He has a dual appearance. He is the earth of darkness and the vitalizing light of heaven. Uh, okay. Yeah, like, oh, he's, he's a chill man. nature spirit. He is all, yeah, anyway. So see, great. like, it's weird. Anyway, is Lucifer your god? Again, like, to reiterate, there's no like, real indication that the Cathars thought this. As far as I know, this is all, like, Aron stuff. I didn't like, see but, anything. Yeah. Is Lucifer your god? Why do you speak of the divinity as masculine? Your designation of god betrays your conception <laughs> of the personification of god. My German contemporaries designate divinity with a neutral gender. Biblical ideas have taken root within you, whether you want to admit it or not. I don't know what the relevance is. I guess maybe in German, 
there is a like masculine like uh, term being used in his question because that seems uh, a non sequitur. But I love that uh, he's saying like you're misgendering God. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's true. God uh, doesn't have a gender. However, like. Uh, it does kind of remind me of like O9A stuff where they're like, how can we be Nazis? You know, like we are feminists, like we worship the white lady Baphomet. <laughs> like, yeah, but anyway, exactly. so is Lucifer your divinity or not? No, he is an intermediary. Do strong people require an intermediary? Yes, but not as an intermediary who redeems. Instead, those who are strong need is one that precedes them. Give an example and model. Lucifer is also the sun, which you need in order to live. You also need it when your time comes to die. Why, I asked, though I suspected the answer. In the winter, the sun dies, and in spring, it arises anew. It brings the light of life and certainty, which are the opposite of doubt. The certainty of rebirth? Yes, if you want to call it that. Perhaps it is better to speak of victory over life, of immortality. Are humans immortal? You have to find the answer for yourself. Look around you. The trunk of the apple tree where I sit is old and rotten. One day it will decay, however, it can sprout blooms. These are then fertilized and grow into fruit. Then the fruit drops to the ground and subsequently rises into trees. I see the man before me. He is no longer young. I ask, are you a father? I was. My four children were burned at Toulouse in an auto da fe. Disgusted, I stood in the midst of those people who justified and excused their atrocities with passages from the Old Testament and stressed the right faith while my children died. How will you live on after your death? By example, for despite everything, I remained strong and proud up to the last breath, and thus I fulfilled the law. Of which law do you speak? You have to find the answer for yourself. Look above you. I look up and am dazzled by the sun. Nevertheless, I recognize what he means. Every evening the sun must leave so that each morning it can rise again above the horizon. Annually, it sinks only to rise again in its prescribed daily course. The sun gives life to the earth and light to other stars. Magnanimously and chivalrously, it allows larger and brighter suns, which only appear smaller, the right to work in their own way. It is strong because it triumphs over the dark clouds, the black night, the dead of winter. It is proud because it gives light of the day and of the year. Look within you, the man says. I can hear within myself two voices arguing with each other. Be silent and still, says the first or the second. You are the affirmation of life and trust, the puzzle of life, the world, things. What is life? Strife and work, illness and death. What is this world? A cornucopia of misery, a valley of tears, a struggle of passions. What are things? From the beginning, they are imperfect, fleeting, with mutable material. Uh, even the star uh, where you are living and feasting will one day no longer be. It also awaits its end. Nothing that you can grasp with your senses is changeless or godly, because God is eternal. There is only one certainty, death. On this rock, you shall build your temple. The second voice answers, yes, I am. Yes, I will remain strong and proud and courageous. I did not create the world, all visible things in myself. Uh, sorry, it did not create. So it did not create the world, all visible things in myself. Of this I am certain. And this certainty makes everything sacred for me. The stars, the earth, the elements, and above all, where the divinity of the world has allowed me to behold the light, my land, and my kin. As life has given me divinity, on that life I build. I am who I am. But I would not be so without kin. If it were not for my homeland, there would not be a homeland if it were not divine. The first voice counters, divinity does not have any more to do with your home than with the land of every other person, because before divinity, all individuals and all peoples are alike. The second voice is silent. The gray man speaks to me. So there's like a deep racial pathology like happening here. But anyway, so the gray man's going to speak yeah. again. My homeland is no more. It was transformed into a heap of rubble at the post behest to make way for a new caste. We were exterminated because we did not recognize Yahweh, Moses, and the prophets. 
we did not pray to Jehovah because his divinity was a God for the Jews and hasn't any relevance for us. Only the Jews have the arrogance to proclaim themselves divine as God's chosen people. Who is Jehovah other than a reflection of the soul of the Benai Israel? Presumptuous, intolerant, disturbed, greedy for power, and ignoble. The soul of my people was different. Our God was light and brightness and nobility. It was we as people who were imperfect. So this is like very fucking sick at this point where basically yeah. he's saying like Jews committed this massacre. So then like you can see kind of how there's I a mean, logic this, building. Yeah. Here. It's also like a deep yeah. hypocrisy. Like only Jews are arrogant enough to walk around like they're the master <laughs> race that was anointed by God to like conquer <laughs> yeah. the world. Really? Like, really? <laughs> like, well, I what are you like, doing right now? Like, yeah. <laughs> in the Richard Stanley documentary, uh, it was mentioned that like he, like they were, it was kind of perceived as being like too fey and like effeminate and artistic. Uh, you know, they made a big like stink over how like, he was a poet. He was a gentle soul, you know, because there's a lot of people who are like very Ron apologists in documentary. But anyway, it does seem that like for whatever reason, like the SS viewed it as a priority of like toughen him up by sending yeah. him to like a concentration camp. To be and a guard. And I think like, yeah, he was at Buchenwald and Dachau. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, you know, maybe he's trying to justify like what he saw there, like because he couldn't anyway. But. So, other people also, it yeah. should be noted, like other people claimed that who saw the original manuscript of Lucifer's Court that the publisher, the SS or somebody inserted a ton of really like the, the spiciest anti-Semitic lines in it were. But again, it's kind of hard to tell because. Yeah, someone yeah, was like, like Otto Ron would never have yeah, written he would that. Never it's write like, that. yeah, a lot of people okay. say that. But yeah, I think that was. Um, well, I think that they actually said that about crusade against the grail which is easier to believe but there's like a lot of anti-semitic stuff in lucifer's court i think it's more if you want to make that argument i think it's more likely that he was writing for his nazi audience yeah uh, but i still feel like he kind of was sort of i mean yeah i just opened to a random page and he's like ranting about how augustine's racial theory should be studied closely yeah i remember that part yeah and, that's like about and, how yeah he said something about should, how like goths were descended from fallen angels Something yeah, like, something, or, something about Cain. Yeah, Rome belonged to Cain's descendants. Abel Remus had been murdered by Cain Romulus. This is the reason why Rome fell into sin and degradation. Only Jesus could free the eternal city from the tyranny of the Gothic conquerors. But the Goths were not descended from Shem or Cain or Seth. Uh, they didn't descend from Abel. But who were they? They were the fallen angels of God, as Augustine refers to them. The God of the Bible condemned these angels, along with Lucifer, to the deepest pit in hell. Augustine's, uh, Augustine's fallen angel of God and his offspring, the Goths, were in one form or another members of Luc Lucifer's court. And says his racial theory should be studied closely. We should also take into account the little-known suggestion of the British statesman Benjamin Disraeli, a Jew who believed <laughs> that history can be understood only if racial questions are properly understood. Like, uh, uh, okay, so the Goths were descended from fallen angel. Now it's like literally you're like yeah, the well they were descendant I guess put of into human bodies, you know, like or something like that. I think that Adam and Eve like, like were supposed to have that happen as well. But yeah, like uh, there's a little bit more here that's is interesting. Uh, speaking of goths, actually, so after that rant about uh, how you know our God was brightness and nobility, and uh, you know their God was evil, 
he says, uh, why do you prefer to those, uh, why do you refer as perfect, those heretics uh, who receive the consolamentum? Why do you call them pure ones? Is it not also presumptuous to call yourself perfect or pure? They say, we called ourselves thus in opposition to Rome, which considers all people, even those of the same blood, spoiled and impure. As grandchildren of our ancestors, the Greeks and the Goths, we felt noble but not transient or separated from God, not spoiled and godless. We didn't need Rome's God because we had our own. We had no need for the commandments of Moses because we carried in our breasts the legacy of our ancestors. It is Moses who was imperfect and impure. That's like very well. Otherwise, he would ha never have taken a moor for his wife, reprimanded his siblings, and let his God strike them with leprosy. It was Moses and his tribe who imposed upon us their faith, writings, and laws. It is they who are imperfect and impure, the souls of slaves and bastards. You can see the Nietzschean aspect of like slave. Anyway. We are a people of Nordic blood who call ourselves Cathar, just as Oriental people of Nordic blood call themselves Farsi, pure ones. What? Anyway, you can understand me. Or is your blood also impure? And he says Farsi? Yes, the Farsi, the ancient Aryans, and we, the Cathars, have not betrayed our blood. This is the secret link for which you are searching and searching. If you reflect upon Parzival, then you should know from now on that this name represents an Iranian word. The word means pure flower. And if you look for the grail, then you're looking for the holy stone, the hral of the Farsi. I have no idea what he's talking about. Like, I can read Persian. I tried to figure out what he was referring to by hral as meaning a stone, but I don't, whatever, uh, know of any such thing. Uh, if anyone can help, I don't know. But the grail only summons, which though, I mean, a lot of his etymologies and ideas, like philological ideas here seem wacky. So I assume, you know, Farsi doesn't mean pure ones, but whatever. The grail only summons, which those in heaven know. And so you read in Wolfram von Eisenbach's works, our heaven is not Jerusalem or Rome's paradise. Our heaven speaks only to pure ones, not to base or mixed race creatures, but to Aryans, noble and lordly. I look up, I am alone. I can hear singing growing nearer and nearer. It is a singing of young men's voices. A scout patrol of the German youth hikes nearby on a highway. I, we call out glad tidings to one another. Then we camp together under the flowering tree and sing a new German song. If one of us becomes tired, the others are awake for him. If one of us wants to doubt, the others who believe laugh. If one of us is to fall, the others stand for two. Because each fighter is a god, the comrades together. Oh um, you know, we're gods, blah, no, blah, Yeah. Stop. Stop thinking you're gods. I, uh, yeah. I mean, that's all obviously very insane. Uh, like, and I don't think that, I don't know where he got the idea that Farsi means pure ones or like that, uh, or I don't whatever know. that is. Even Cause that plural, is kind of the root word of, of Cathars, right? Is like, yeah, it comes the, from like catharsis. That's what they say. The yeah. Qatar. Yeah. yeah Qatar. Uh, but yeah. I was wondering if maybe this does have to do with like, you know, uh, I mean, Sufi, means like you know one who puts on wool like that's actually the the meaning of it in the most popularly recognized like etymology but there are some like sort of alternate uh readings of it as meaning like having to do with with uh, safi like being pure like uh you know like uh so i was wondering if maybe he had like assimilated some information about that because i do feel like, but anyway uh well, yeah. that's a good uh summary of i mean well, yeah, it's weird that he loves Persians, but he hates Moors. Uh, but I guess, you know, one's a polluted mixed race and one's Aryan. So kind of I guess sense. so. Well, it's interesting to read that from, you know, his later work when he was already in the SS and maybe uh, playing to the Nazi part of the audience uh, pretty hard because I bookmarked kind of his summary of the Cathars 
kind of theological doctrine. I think I'm like page 75 in Crusade Against the Grail. I just want to read a little bit from that because it's interesting how it doesn't exactly, it contradicts, I feel like it contradicts to some extent with like what you just read about yeah. like his supposed encounter with like a Cathar his ghost. His notions who told him everything. definitely changed and he. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what he said first in, yeah. in 1933 and, and it, yeah, it has so many contradictions, but uh, okay. So he said that the Occitan Cathars taught that God is spirit for all eternity. Love, amor, is absolute, perfect in itself, immutable, eternal, and just. Nothing evil or transitory can exist in it or come from it. Consequently, its works can only be perfect, immutable, eternal, just, and good, as pure in the end as the fountain from which they flow. If we contemplate this world, its imperfection, impermanence, and changeability are self-evident. The matter from which it is made is perishable, and it is the cause of innumerable evils and sufferings. This matter of life contains within it the principle of death, a death from which no one can escape. Out of this opposition between imperfect matter and God's perfection, between a world full of misery and a God who is love itself, between creatures who are born only to die and a God who is eternal life, the Cathars came to the conclusion that an incompatibility exists between what is perfect and what isn't. Don't the foundations of modern philosophy establish the principle of cause and effect? If the cause is immutable, so are its effects. Consequently, a being with a contradictory nature could not have created the terrestrial world and its creatures. If the creation is the work of a good God, why did he not make it perfect like himself? And if he wanted to make it perfect and couldn't, it is obvious that he is neither all-powerful nor perfect. <laughs> if he could have made, argument, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If he um, could have made it perfect and didn't want to, he would be in conflict with the perfection of love. Consequently, for the, for the Cathars, God did not create the terrestrial world. And he quotes from uh, Lenau and the Albigenses. If a god can be called an invalid who constructed a world in feverish ardor, only soon to destroy it with feverish shudders, is the world's destiny none other than freezing or burning? Wasn't it only a son of the gods to whom this world fell as a plaything of colors that as fast as it entertains, it behaves badly without any other power than the stuttering of its desires? Uh. If so many things that happen in this world have nothing to do with divine providence and the desire of God, then how can we believe that God is happy with so much disorder and confusion? And how to explain that all the creatures whose only purpose is to disturb and torture mankind come from a creator who is pure kindness for man? How can the fires and floods that destroy crops and cause the death of so many people or destroy the shacks of the poor be ascribed to this God, a God who is used by our enemies to justify our destruction, we who only wish for and seek the truth? Such were the thoughts of the Albigensian Cathars. And how could a perfect God give, a, give man a body whose ultimate destiny is death after having been tortured by all types of evils? The Cathars saw far too much intent in visible creation to somehow deny it an intelligent origin. From the analogous principle of cause and effect, they deduce that bad effects come from bad causes and that our world, which could never have been created by a good God, had to have as its creator a bad principle. This dualist system, which we have already found in Mazdaism, Druidism, and Pythagorean philosophy, bases itself in the fundamental opposition between good and evil. Seizing on the New Testament, the Cathars believed that they could refute the opinions of the doctors of the church to whom evil was without any doubt the antithesis of good, but really nothing other than the negation or absence of good, with no basis, with no basis in special principle. When the devil tempted Christ, 
all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me, how could he offer it if it did not already belong to him? And how could it belong to him if he wasn't its creator? When Christ speaks of the plants that his celestial father did not plant, it is proof that they were planted by somebody else. When John the Evangelist speaks of, quote, the children of God that are not born from flesh and blood, from whom do the children of flesh and blood come? Are not these children from another creator, the devil, who according to Christ's own words is, quote, their father? And he quotes from John 8:44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye, therefore, hear them not, because ye are not of God. For the Cathars, all passages of the New Testament that mention the devil or the fight between the flesh and the spirit or the old man who should be cast out or the world submerged in sin and darkness were sufficient to demonstrate the antithesis between God, now this is interesting, between God, whose kingdom is not of this earth, and the true prince of this world, Lucifer, not Satan, Lucifer. The kingdom yeah. of God is the invisible world, absolutely good and perfect, the world of light and eons, the eternal city. God is the, quote, creator of all things because to create signifies producing something that, don, did, that did not exist before. He also created matter, which before was non-existent. He created it from nothing, but only from principle. It was Lucifer, himself a creature of God, who gave shape to matter. This was his principle. Who is the cause of this world? Can you resolve this question? The spirits are of God. The bodies are of the evil one. The Cathars believe that Lucifer, whom they also called Luzbel, had created everything visible, material, and perishable. Not only do all terrestrial things belong to him, but he also governs them and tries to keep them under his domination. But the Old Testament tells us that Jehovah is the creator of heaven and earth and virtually everything on it. This is true, the Cathars said. He created human beings, man and woman. In the New Testament, you can read, There is neither man nor woman, but you are all one thing in Christ Jesus, and that for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. By contrast, Jehovah said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. How does this work out? Jehovah curses and God blesses. All the children of God in the Old Testament sinned, and in the New Testament, those born of God do not sin. Don't they contradict one another? The Cathars referred specifically to passages of the Old Testament that speak of the vengeance and anger of Jehovah. They were convinced that Jehovah, who sent the great flood, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and repeated over and over that he wanted to destroy his enemies and transfer the sins of fathers onto the sons of the third and fourth generations, was neither God nor absolute and eternal love. Jehovah forbade Adam from eating from the tree of science. He either knew that human beings would eat the fruit, or he didn't. If he knew it, he did nothing other than push Adam toward temptation, make him a sinner, and provoke his destructions. Above all, the Albigensian heretics invoked the seventh chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, where Paul calls Mosaic law a, quote, law of death and sin. Lot committed incest with his daughters. Abraham lied and committed adultery with his servant. David was a murderer and adulterer. And the rest mentioned in the Old Testament were not any better, affirmed the Cathars. For them, 
The law that Jehovah announced to the Jews through Moses was of satanic inspiration, and if it contained some good things, for example, the seventh commandment, it was in order to gain some hardy souls for the cause of evil. A divinity who reveals himself in a burning bush to a man, Moses, cannot be, quote, God, because God is spirit and does not reveal himself to mortals in physical matter. Jehovah is not God. He is the Antichrist. He is Lucifer. <laughs> well, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so in that case, it's like a more conventional, like, I mean, again, Jehovah's like an not, op, basically. Yeah, it doesn't make, yeah, Jehovah's an op, but again, it doesn't really make any sense. Like, uh, I feel like his argument isn't ultimately very strong anyway, because, like, you know, why, if, like, the whole idea, like, oh, you know, the world's bad, so, like, it couldn't have been created by a good God. Well, then, like, if there is a good God at all, why did he allow the Demiurge to create this world? if he's more powerful, unless they're of equal power, which is problematic. Um, yeah, it starts to get very thorny very quickly. Because yeah, it, it kind of same, has the same problem of, like, not wanting to accept, like, it's the same, like, issue of, it's, like, a, one way to kind of, like, kick the can down the road of, like, evil, but you still yeah. kind of have to deal with it ultimately. And I think, like, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like some of his stuff from, like, the the idea that, like, um, you know, the children of God are not by, like, flesh. I feel like, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it was saying that they weren't actually of flesh and blood. Like, it was talking about what the, what it means to be children of God in that way, which is kind of interesting, you know, in light of, like, how Jesus is considered the son of God. But anyway, like, you know, not, like, biological children, like a different type of children. But oh, yeah, any, yeah, like, exactly. children in a different sense. Like, I think that maybe what, what they were getting. But anyway, that's, yeah. They also believe that Jesus was a ghost. <laughs> yeah, they did think that he was a ghost. Um, and the, uh, kind of almost, like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a, maybe a little similar to to the Islamic uh, conception of Isa, where he, like, the the dying on the cross is almost like an apparition that tricked everybody, but it didn't yeah, really Yeah, there are happen. some interpretations, like, of the what the Quran says about Isa that, um, like, are kind of docetic in that way. Like, that they, yeah, like, the idea that Jesus was, there's some kind of, like, illusory nature to him on the cross. They basically think that, like, he was always, like, ghostly, like, the, the whole time that he was there, whereas, like, you know, that idea is more of, like, you know, that he... There was like an illusory quality to him, like on the cross, but but Islam yeah. believes that he was a he was a man who was born yes. and was a prophet, but not yeah. The son and of God. we uh, like uh, the Quran does talk about the virgin birth, so oh interesting. You know, we yeah do believe in that. I so that. basically, like everything except for him being like the begotten son of God, we believe in. Like we believe that he. We even call him the Word of God. Damn. But you know the I whole mean, idea of him being the say Word. Damn, but you know what I mean. Yeah, um, but yeah, we don't yeah. believe in uh, him being the son of God, which is like very emphatically stated not to be the case. Yeah, um, li- oh, uh, but yeah. also, you know, the, it is weird that he, when he lays out these beliefs that he seems to be very enamored with, that a few years later he would be like, um, hail Lucifer, like Lucifer is Apollo, he is our yeah. Nordic god, like we should all worship him. When well, he's the describing in this, like Lucifer's not a good guy in the way the cop Yes, are, he uses like, Lucifer, in Crusade Against the Grail, he uses Lucifer like in the normal way to like mean Satan and like the bad guy. And in this case, like, you know, Jehovah is like who he equates it with. And in Crusade Against, uh, sorry, uh, in Lucifer's court by that time, he's totally like, as you explain, like, yeah, as the passage you just read sort of lays out, they were, like, placing the Cathars, uh, by his own account in, uh, uh, Crusade Against the Grail, 
they were placing the Old Testament and the New Testament side by side and being like, these don't square. One is from the good God and one's from the bad God. But he stated like in Lucifer's court very emphatically, like, no, I think those are both by the bad God. And yeah. that's, you yeah. know, the message the, of Jesus is like satanic yes. and it's like a Jewish psyop or something. Yeah, like that. exactly. And he, yeah, the idea of Apollo does kind of show up in Crusade Against the Grail where he says, you know, Apollo was the god of pure solar light who freed the earth in the springtime from the claws of winter. For this, he was also known as the uh, Sotor or the savior who purified the dead sinner and led him to redemption at the entrance to the luminous land of souls. This god brought help and benediction. In a boat pulled by swans, he reached the land of the Hyperboreans. The clouds sang like the rainfall. The trickling of the water was a song of nature. For this reason, Apollo was the magister of the muses, and his attributes were the lyre and the laurel, whose branches formed the crowns of poets. So the idea of Apollo being like the sort of patron god of Hyperborea, like, you know, even says the Hyperboreans were the chosen people of Apollo. Pious, with pure customs, they lived happily. They live in the forest of their country where the sun and fertility reigned and the temperatures were agreeable. They nourished themselves solely with fruits. They never killed an animal, knew no war or quarrels. When they were tired of life, they sought their freedom in the never-ending waves of the sea. So they, I guess, committed suicide when they were sick of life. They just walked into the sea. Apollo was their supreme god. The radiating one came to them in a golden chalice similar to a star whose splendor reached the sky. Apollo loved the Hyperboreans from the first day when the waves of the sea carried to their hospitable coasts that chest where his mother, Semele, had placed him. I'm sorry, Samil? Samil? I don't know. Uh, yeah, Semele, maybe. From then on, year after year, he came to them, transported from wave to wave in that marvelous concave litter that Hephaestus had worked in precious gold, a litter that transported him asleep on the surface of the waters. So, you know, like here Apollo is like yeah the patron god kind of of the Hyperboreans and that he doesn't become associated with Lucifer yet but the idea of like you know Hyperborea like that's uh Thule we got to get there like that's base like that's where we come from the glorious land of Hyperborea and like Apollo becoming the sort of Lucifer being the solar god the light bearer they kind of become conflated but they don't that doesn't happen until the later book later on for him yeah he he describes the like the fall of Lucifer, you know, in that same section. It sounds like very similar to like your Rancho book, where you know it's like he commanded like the celestial armies, but then he got arrogant and he recruited some angels. He he seduced the four angels of the elements and a regiment of the celestial army, and God expelled him. And his light, which w- had been soft and pure, was retur- was replaced by a reddish incandescent iron kind of devilly glow no uh the angels seduced by lucifer stripped of their finery and crowns and expelled from the heavens and lucifer fled with them but then tormented by remorse he said to god have patience with me i will return everything to you and god having compassion for his preferred son gave him seven days which meant seven centuries to do everything he thought was proper then Lucifer established his residence in the firmament and ordered the rest of the angels who followed him to shape the earth. He took his crown, which had been broken since his expulsion from the kingdom of the heavens, and with half of it formed the sun, and with the other half the moon. Then he converted his precious stones into the stars. From the primitive mud he fashioned the first terrestrial creatures, animals, and plants. The supreme angels of the third and second heavens decided to share power with Lucifer and pleaded with God to allow them to descend to earth, promising to return immediately afterward. God read their thoughts, but he did not deny their wish. 
haven't, he wanted to punish them for their lie, but he advised them not to fall asleep during their voyage, because if they did, they would forget the way to return to heaven. If they fell asleep, he would not call them before 7,000 years had passed. The two angels began their journey, but Lucifer put them in a deep sleep and locked them in bodies that had been shaped from the original clay. When the angels awoke, they were human beings. Adam and Eve, no. To get them to forget heaven, Lucifer created earthly paradise, but he decided to cheat them with a new strategy. He wanted them both to sin in order to make them his slaves forever. (laughs) When he put them in paradise, he forbade them to give more encouragement to their natural, natural curiosity, to eat from the tree of science. He transformed himself into a snake and seduced Eve, who in turn induced Adam to commit the original sin. Lucifer knew very well that God had also forbidden the first pair to eat the wretched fruit. Because God would never want to see the multiplication of Lucifer's nature, Lucifer acted as if the prohibition of eating the fruit came from himself to triumph in this way with greater certainty. For the Cathars, the apple of the tree of science was the symbol of the original sin, the sexual union of man and woman. Through carnal sin, Adam and Eve were disobedient. The sins of the flesh, however, was and continued to be the most serious grievance because it was committed with their full approval and represented a conscious rebellion of the soul against God. Humanity had to reproduce because Lucifer needed fresh souls. No. (laughs) In the new bodies produced by Adam and Eve, he could find all the angels who had abandoned the celestial regions with him. And then, with the death of Abel, murder entered into the world. After a while, God had compassion with the fallen angels who had been expelled from heaven and transformed into humans. So he decided to reveal himself to them and sent his most perfect creature down to the earth, his supreme angel, Christ, who would assume an outwardly human appearance. Christ came to the world to indicate how they could return to heaven, to the kingdom of the eternal light. Christ did not become a man, a creature of Lucifer. He only appeared as one. He only gave the impression that he ate, drank, taught, suffered, and died, revealing to humans a sort of shadow of his real body. This is the reason he could walk on water and transform himself on Mount Tabor, where he revealed to his disciples the real substance of his body. Since the fall of Lucifer, Jesus Christ was the greatest of all angels, and for this reason he is called the Son of God. When Jesus said he wasn't of this world, but rather from above it, the Cathars applied this this passage of the New Testament not only to the spiritual nature of the Savior, but also to his body. With this ethereal body, the Aeon Christ entered the body of Maria like the word of God through her ear. He left her as pure as he had entered her without taking any of her matter. For this reason, he never called her mother, and this is why he said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? So they did not recognize the reality of the miracles of Jesus. How could he cure physical illnesses when he considered the body an obstacle to the redemption of the soul? You know, when he cured the blind, he was curing men who were blinded by sin. The bread he divided among the 5,000 was his word, the bread of the soul that gave her a life. The storm that he calmed was the storm of passions unleashed by Lucifer. In this respect, uh, it is possible to apply the words of Christ. Uh, The written word kills, but the spirit breathes life and yeah and so yeah. on and so on you know and they talked about i guess when they would do communion they would say give us this day our supernatural bread <laughs> because they felt that daily bread was too worldly oh and my goodness like why are you like praising god for material rewards that's sinful yeah you know like it shouldn't be about god giving you literal bread and you know blah 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 so yeah, that that's uh, and of course that was like one of the doctrines that the inquisitors like came after them for, basically rejecting transubstantiation and stuff. So you yeah, know, all of this is like not not looked upon kindly by no. the Catholic Church at the time. But also yeah, like Lucifer, he's the bad guy in this. 
Yeah, you can kind of, I mean, however, like, accurate that representation is, it's definitely different from how he represents, like, Cathars later. He sort of changes things. Basically, like, he replaces Jesus with Lucifer, kind of, in this. Slash Apollo, slash. Yeah, uh, Lucifer the, the, being kind of Apollo, yeah. But yeah, uh, this is an interesting part are... in that same section of Crusade Against the Grail, just like a paragraph where he says you know this kind of like is almost uh, getting like a little bit uh, in the direction of where he would end up later where uh, he says neither should we forget that cathar dualism provided a beneficial contrast to the fear of the devil so extensive in the medieval catholic church i mean yeah like i i definitely understand that like the catholic church like was rampant with like fear of the devil uh, in, you know in medieval times and like but I don't see like how thinking that the entire world was created by Satan and was like a satanic construct prison planet is less scary, but whatever. Anyway, the oppressive influence of demons and the intellectual behavior of the Christian Middle Ages is well known. In Catholicism, the Antichrist was the rival of God with his hell, his armies, and a satanic power over spirits. Compared with Catholics' fear of the devil, a desolate obsession that lasted an entire millennium, the Cathar idea to engage Elizabeth was somewhat more conciliatory. For them, Lucifer was a rebellious angel, non-spiritual and mendacious, the embodiment of the world as it was and continues to be. According to the heretics, when humanity looks for the path of spirituality, it will have crushed the power of the prince of this world. He will have no other choice than to submit to the spirit with contrition and penitence. I feel like that is, like, incredibly tendentious, like, you know, for reasons that I just said. Like, it makes Satan is more powerful if you believe he created and rules the world. And God I mean, I didn't see, stop him. I can but see like, what he means that they maybe they didn't hype up like the fear of Satan in the same way. It, it is a kind of weird like uh, like difference between the Catholic conception of Satan and maybe like the Cathars where the Cathars are almost giving him like a bigger role and more authority over this world. But they see him as like eh, he's this wayward angel like you shouldn't worship him. Definitely like he's bad like but also yeah, but the catholics like almost kind of opening the door to like the sympathy for the devil that like, it is almost, i mean he seems to suggest he's like, opening it yeah yeah he's i think he's opening it a exactly little more, like i don't uh, think that this is like I, like i don't know where he's like getting that from or like why i i have a feeling that you know if you're so like concerned about like eating eggs because they have conceptual intercourse like i don't think there's a practical difference between like the sort of demonomania that you might encounter from like a catholic and like that type of stuff where you're like um, so yeah, yeah the catholics yeah. were like extremely vigilant you yeah know I mean? they were vigilant citizens like yes, they exactly. didn't want so to like, much like the raelians they did not they were not interested in procreating at all which yeah. is you know if you're trying to start a religious tradition that endures like not always the best strategy but no, it is a testament reminds to me like of shakers or whatever things like that you know uh -huh. so it's not the priority but like i mean you can see how like he just idolizes these cathars out of all proportion and so like they change based on what he like is searching for
as a segue, I think this is a good thing from Crusade Against the Grail that kind of situates like the whole Lucifer thing. And like, this is, you know, what we were just talking about. Like, this is still in the time where he's using Lucifer as like a bad thing. This is like a story that Adoran heard from a shepherd, apparently, near the summit of the, the Tabor uh, mountain on the way to the, the castle, uh, Montsegur. So the shepherd apparently told him, when the walls of Montsegur were still standing, the Cathars, the pure ones, kept the Holy Grail inside them. Montsegur was in danger. The armies of Lucifer were before its walls. So that's like Catholics, basically. They wanted to take the Grail and insert it again in the diadem of their prince from where it had broken off and fallen to earth during the fall of the angels. So in this telling, like, you know, the evil sort of Catholic church is, you know, the in league with Lucifer and they want to get the grail to reinsert it into Lucifer's diadem. But yes, which several years later is what Otto Ron exactly, seems to want yes. to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. But at that critical moment, a white dove came from the sky and split the tabor, the mountain in two. Uh, Esclarmonde, the keeper of the grail, like sort of the lady of the grail, uh, threw the precious relic into the mountain where it was hidden. So they saved the grail. When the devils entered the castle, it was too late. Furious, they burned all the pure ones, not far from the rocky castle on uh, Camp des Cremats. So, Camp des Cremats. So, yeah, basically, that's sort of a spin on the Parseval story. So, this like just sparked his curiosity. But, yeah, as you said, like uh, exactly what the evil, uh, you know, persecutors of the Cathars were doing in the story, uh, he kind of eventually started doing, which is a crazy journey. Um, and and like what was what, what was the SS if not the armies of Lucifer like feverishly searching the world to like recover yes. the Grawl and like put it back into like Lucifer's diadem? Yes, basically. and basically like he was kind of spinning this weird tale. Like I feel like you know, Crusade Against the Grail isn't like super streamlined. It is kind of like a bunch of weird impressionistic ideas that I guess appealed to Himmler a lot. Uh, you know, I feel like he maybe thought like, okay, there's something in here that like we can work with. And I think that Ron maybe perceived that too, that that was like kind of what he was doing was sort of like generating some kind of mythology or uh, that, you know, could sort of break away from Christianity and be more originarily Germanic or uh, whatever. And so the direction he ended up taking it in was like, you know, let's, embrace lucifer i guess <laughs> which yeah. is very bizarre our true god yeah our yeah. true god but yeah i think there are certain like things about Adoran that like are notable you know that we haven't like necessarily brought up yet like we talked about the fact that he was you know stationed for a while in a concentration camp dachau and buchenwald but another thing that he did i guess to prove his loyalty to himmler was that he had to go to this hotel that was known as like the liebensborn Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Do you yeah, remember this? this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is connected to the Liebensborn program, which was like all yeah. about breeding like Aryan super children from yeah. often like kidnapped children from like occupied countries, right? Yeah. Well, what he had to do, I guess, is that he had to go to some hotel and like mass impregnate, even though he wasn't like super Aryan. And in fact, he was Jewish, as you mentioned, like he had a Jewish mother just mm -hmm. to kind of like show his complicity or like, you know, uh, his compliance with the program. He yeah. had to go to this hotel and like have sex with a bunch of women to produce like Aryan 
children. That's like exactly. what, yeah, is. is a show of loyalty. There are many such things like that in the SS. Yeah. Um, um, and later was pressured to like get married. There were allegations that surfaced of homosexuality in the late 30s that yeah. caused a big stir, but there's a lot of disagreement over whether or not that was really happening or if that was sort of the most convenient thing to make up about somebody to cancel them essentially like within the yeah to, to neutralize nazi somebody cancel him right yeah to like nazi cancel blackmail yeah yeah so i mean that's not clear but uh yeah he was certainly it could stick you know he was effeminate uh basically it was just like you know a way to destroy somebody but yeah, yeah man, many of the people in the SS felt that he was just not manly enough in general. And then yeah. so they, they put him through a lot of, I think even when he was posted as a concentration camp guard, he was posted to like the special SS training unit where you had to do a lot of like physical training and probably a lot of fucked up shit as well. Um, yeah. And he was not really like the best <laughs> at it. Yeah. And it seemed to have a very negative psychological impact on him the time at the at the camps. Um, but I mean, yeah, even before that, you know, we watched, maybe this is a good segue to talk about the fastest telling of the story is probably uh, Richard Stanley's documentary from 2001, the secret yeah. glory. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll save our, our commentary on Richard Stanley himself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for a little uh, later. It'd uh, be good to touch on him a bit. Uh, maybe a little bit. He, shit, I think yeah. a whole, he could get a whole episode, honestly. I wasn't I mean, that familiar with him, but yeah, he's a I mean, Lord. he's a weird, and he kind of like weirdly like continued like Otto Ron's quest. Weirdly enough, uh, it's it's strange. That's the thing is that yeah. he himself is like a kind of Grail Quester type person, yes. and you know, kind of acts like. I mean, he's not like a Nazi, but he kind of apologizes for Ron. <laughs> yeah, a little in bit. the documentary, and yeah. also you know he films a lot of people who like knew Otto Ron, and a lot of them are kind of doing a lot of rationalizing. To kind of down, I think the general impression is like, yeah, sure, he was like a, you know, a member of the National Socialist Party and enthusiastically joined the SS and all that stuff. But like, no, but I think what he wrote down is above all, he was a poet. Yeah, well, it was a funny quote, <laughs> but it was like that. an exact juxtaposition of like, uh, I don't remember like who said that. I mean, it was, I feel like, yeah, he interviews a bunch of people. Some of them are a bit harder on him. Some of them are very soft on him. Um, yeah, you're right. we could question whether Otto Rahn was really a Nazi. He was a member of the National Socialist Party from the beginning, but above all, he was a poet, which is like, well, I mean, he was a Nazi. He was a member of the party from literally the beginning. Um, I, I think you mentioned elsewhere his niece is interviewed and she tells a story about how his mother, who ended up being Jewish, knitted him an SS sweater in the early 19... Yeah. Uh, it was either... It was before, I think, the Nazis took power and the SS was established, right? Right, yeah. Like, um, I think even in the 20s. And then eventually the, the niece inherited the SS sweater, like, from her uncle. And she sort of was like, oh, okay... And so he was fascinated with a lot of this, like, Thule society kind of uh, mystical shit uh, to some extent, like, even, you know, earlier on. Uh, in that, that Actually, does the documentary even kind of specify when exactly he joined the Nazi party? I feel like it kind of glosses over that. It doesn't say when he joined. It, it just says, like, from the I feel like it doesn't, even, yeah. it doesn't even mention it except for that guy who says it in passing. Yeah. Um, huh, right. Yeah, I mean, it goes little, into how yeah. he was in the, but it's weird. Yeah. Like it certainly doesn't lead with it. It leads with how he was like a grail quester 
uh, and like how he was super interested in this, like, you know, and going to uh, Monsignor and like, uh, you know, interpreting uh, Eisenbach's poem and things like that and sort of the legends and the ideas. And yeah, like it like only like it gets into that like later on like uh it's kind of yeah buries the lead of him being like a huge nazi um in the kind of the middle of the documentary yeah for sure um and uh, yeah he doesn't really i mean we haven't even talked so much like we've talked about you know what this guy was writing and how he came to the attention of himmler and all these people but I mean, especially the documentary really puts front and center, like, the quest itself. Because I, I think we can fairly say that Otto Ron was obsessed with literally finding the Grawl. Yeah, right? definitely wanted to find it, for like, sure. Like, part of all, all of this work that he's doing about outlining the Cathars and the crusade against them and their, you know, religious traditions, this is all, like in a, like, a detective journey for him to try to suss out where they might have hidden uh, the grail at like the end of the Catholic crusade. Exactly. Because, you know, he does, he finds legends that say, oh, you know, in one of these fortresses they were besieged, but then they sent four Cathar knights like rappelling down the mountain with all of the the precious jewels and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, and they had this, uh, he talks a lot and explored a lot Mm -hmm. of these like ancient cave systems that are in the mountains there, which are very, that is very interesting. Yes. And it, he gives the impression that, I mean, of course, this is in the 30s, but he gives the impression that a lot of them have sort of still remain kind of untouched and undiscovered by the modern world. But, you know, maybe in one of these caverns, the Grawl is there, like waiting, all the, right. you know, hibernating. And, um, or, you know, the whoever that woman was, the like Esclarmond, uh, the descendant of Esclarmond who, like, did a magic spell and like the mountain opened up and she threw the grail inside of it and the mountain yeah. like swallowed it. That's another, I uh, think that was uh, Esclarmond herself or was like supposed to be, um, okay, she okay. did it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but he really wants to find this grawl, which is, you know, the, <laughs> the jewel of, of, of off the crown of yeah, Lucifer, an actual and, like stone. And what like was kind of suggested that it sort of was, was like these, uh, like a meteorite basically, which is, you know, the, as we said, like, not really uh, unprecedented in, like, esoteric sort of teachings or just, like, in religious practice in general, like, the veneration of, mm-hmm. like, meteorites or stones from from the heavens. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, the Kaaba is, like, the black sun of the Kaaba is a good example. Um, yeah, totally. But And yeah, also, like, like oh, he but, tries to trace kind of, like, the, the journey of this grail and where it kind of came from because, again, it's not the grail that, you know, collected the blood of Jesus or that Jesus drank from or anything like that. No, Though he does stone, kind of like trace... Yeah. It, um, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of... He sort of hypothesizes a journey where at some point it does kind of pass through Jerusalem and then gets taken by the Romans... But then I think maybe when the Goths sacked Rome at a certain point, they stole the stone and brought it back to the Pyrenees where it was kept for hundreds of years, you know, among the the local lords who then, you know, later became hundreds of years later became the the Cathars uh, were still protecting and all that stuff. And 
Yeah. So, that, so he uh, thinks, you know, the, all the roads lead. But I don't know where he thinks it first originated. Did you think? Did he think it kind of originated with the Indo-European like mystery civilization? Basically, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, he really, must, it originated right? like when it just kind of like fell to Earth, like uh, in like primordial time. So sure. I think, but the history of it being venerated as an object, like who was the first civilization to probably like as it? soon as it did, I guess, right? But um, like who who discovered it? Yeah, I guess like primordial Aryans or Europeans, I guess. Yeah, it um, seems to be like they leave the door wide open for that assumption, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's been like revered since primordial time, or you know, so uh, like forever, basically. Um, yeah. But so. it did drive me crazy through, throughout Crusade Against the Grail, which is the one book I read like cover to cover, is the maddening aspect, which kind of recurs throughout all these myths of like, yes, but what the fuck is the Grail? Like, yeah. like can you please explain to me? Like, it's like, well, it's like a jewel that fell from the diadem of Lucifer. And it's like, no, no, no. But like, what does it do? Like, does it provide superpowers? Does it provide you immortality? Like, why does everybody? And it's a, he almost treats it as like, a mystical kind of you can't even describe what it's like to yeah. get the, the grawl because it's so beautiful and infinite and magical and like the best thing ever like it would almost sully it to talk about <laughs> yeah. like the worldly benefits it could give you but he, it's almost he's maddeningly vague about what the fuck this thing actually is and what it does but it seemed but he treats it with like this is the most historically important physical object like, <laughs> yeah. in the entire world that we need to find it well, so it's, it's yeah, weird. I feel like there's multiple like components to it. Like on one hand, like, yeah, I think there is kind of like sort of a connotation of like maybe it does have these powers uh, that like are ascribed to it in the poem Parzival. But also like I feel like what he's kind of getting at is that like if he could prove that the Cathars had this grail mm -hmm. that would like somehow legitimize them and that it would almost kind of like... Uh, I see. You know, this is a symbolic power that we're talking about. Yeah, like an ontological like almost, symbolic weapon, yeah. like a MacGuffin. That it, it almost matters less a little bit, like what it is, than the the collected kind of legend and wisdom or whatever. The collected legends around it would verify this theory of like deep Indo-European religion, exactly. Blah yeah. blah blah. That stands in opposition to like Rome and Christianity and yeah. Judaism. This is kind right? of like the beginning of the uh, like whole like Da Vinci Code thing, where like in the Da Vinci Code, like what the Holy Grail is, is like the idea that like Jesus had children, and that there's a whole like line, you know, of descent from Jesus, and then like. You know, there's like still people living today who are like the Priory of Sion or whatever, you know, like uh, very last temptation of Christ kind yeah. of uh, alternate history. And some of those legends intertwine with like the region of the Pyrenees and stuff. Oh, yeah. Some for people sure. believe that Jesus and like Mary Magdalene like move there or something like afterwards. And yeah. Or that like it was like entrusted uh, to them. Like uh, one of the like big influence like influence influences on Adoran and in general like influential influential in that line uh was Maurice Magre who wrote like about the Le Sang de Toulouse you know Toulouse in France which I think is basically That's in this like region yeah uh a huge which, massacre there yeah which I guess basically is that kind of idea of like the the Christian blood kind of or like the you know uh 
the line of Jesus like being there or something. Yeah, he is the one. He actually said uh, the Albigenses, you know, the sort of Cathars were Western Buddhists who introduced a brand of Gnostic Christianity into the Oriental doctrine. How the words of Buddha could have traversed continents and fallen to the souls of men of the Languedoc is not known, nor does it greatly matter. <laughs> So, yeah, he was, like, a big advocate of that particular idea that, like, Buddhism, like, actually had shaped this notion. Yeah, I'm not, like, super strongly sold on that no, kind of theory. No, me neither. I think that... Particularly because like, now that we... Like, you don't need that, like, to... You know, it's not like yeah. Buddhists are the only people who have ever believed in reincarnation or whatever or in... True, totally. Like, know, between the indigenous the druidic beliefs and also now that we've discovered, like, the Nag Hammadi and all of the Gnostic Gospels and, and, like, Dead Sea Scrolls and all that stuff, we've actually found fragments of these early kind of Gnostic Gospels from, like, the first, second, third, fourth centuries this lines up very like strongly with those a lot of those sects and their kind of gnostic interpretation of christ and all kinds of other things right yeah i think we've read some of what like gospel of thomas and uh, a couple other things you know and and some of those were not discovered in the lifetime of Otto Ron, like in this era but so that's that's a little more of a you know it's much easier to believe that maybe those gnostic ideas uh, circulated around the Mediterranean, you know, yeah. in the first millennia after Christ. And maybe some of those, like, embedded themselves, especially because I think a lot of those groups were persecuted, probably in a lot of the Roman territories, like, certainly in Rome, but probably Greece and, to some extent, like, in Judea and mm -hmm. Palestine. Uh, so maybe some of them fled, you know, far to the far west, to maybe Spain and, you know, southern France and things like that. Yeah, also, like, by trade, you know, like, doctrines mm -hmm. can spread by trade. Yeah, yeah, because they were also very, like, they had very strong relations with Tripoli as well, and, like, the North African coast. Yeah. And then later, I mean, the Moors, you know, occupied. And, like, also the Byzantine Empire is, like, a big source mm -hmm. of, you know, it's a big power, a uh, big source of, yeah. like, Christian ideas. So, so there's like a lot of possible influences yeah. at, at play, yeah. like in this region that could have For led sure. to, you know, the rise of like Catharism. Yes. Um, uh, for and, sure. and, and also like they don't require that like there's a magic grail. <laughs> like, you know, like no. you could totally look at the history of the Cathars as kind of. No. And the association of the Cathars with the grail, I think, like kind of originates with Ron's like sort of processing of like the ideas of Maurice Magre or things like that. Um, like this wasn't the thing that everybody knew the Cathars were associated with the entire time. Was yeah. it, It's not like it was at the forefront of the conversation. Yeah, like his sort of teachers like Antonin Gadal. Yeah, no, they like kind of were the ones who were super into that uh, and championed it. Yeah. yeah, it's not like the, the Pope, you know, heavily. not like Pope Innocent said, you know, they have a satanic grail, <laughs> like we have to stop them or they have the Holy Grail or anything like that. Of course, it's probably not something the Catholic Church would advertise, but, you know, Otto Ron would probably say that, well, secretly, I mean, that's what he does say is kind of that the, the idea, even the, the whole idea of like the Catholic conception of the Holy Grail that was used by Joseph of Arimathea, you know, um, and then maybe ended up in Europe and then other relics and garments of Jesus's, you know, uh, those were all just cover stories for trying to find the, you know, the Cathar Graal 
yeah. that was much older than Jesus and all that other stuff. And of course, they had to psyop everybody, so they covered it up and said, "Oh, we're looking for the precious cup of the Savior." Blah blah blah. Yeah. You well, know, even so. like the idea of the cup, like that wasn't like the, people would say that it was like the spear of Longinus or whatever, uh, something like that. You know, the uh, like the whole the Holy Grail and the whole cup thing. I'm trying to remember the name of the writer who associated them to begin with. Uh, I think that it was, uh, what was his name? Robert something. Uh, Wasn't there a big book in the Robert 80s de Boron, that... maybe? Yeah, in the late 12th and early 13th centuries. Oh. So he was, I think, one of the people who really popularized the idea that the Grail was a cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper, and it was used to catch his blood as he hung on the cross. Well, um, do you, uh, real quick, do you know what the etymology of grail is? Because I always assumed it meant cup. So it's weird to be like, oh, but a grail is really a stone. But is that just, it took on it, I think it does with mean, cup later? I think it does mean vessel. Oh, okay. Yeah, but yeah, so I think it does mean vessel, but it also like, you know, can it's been given like different etymologies, like the idea of the sangriel, like it means royal blood, like that was, you know, the idea of like the Jesus bloodline that became a whole big thing in Holy Blood, Holy Grail, that famous book. I think that's what you're mentioning from in the 80s, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Yeah. yeah. But like even earlier writers had popularized that association between like the blood of Jesus, like Thomas Mallory, he didn't believe in like the Jesus bloodline thing, but he used the uh, San Grail thing. And mm -hmm. I think some earlier guy invented it. Okay. John Harding invented it. According to Wikipedia, he invented Sangrail. <laughs> was this English writer, John Harding, in the 15th century. But yeah, I think it does, apparently, like, it actually does mean vessel. And it's, okay. like, from a copper bowl of earth, wood, or metal. The most commonly accepted etymology derives from the Latin gradalis or gradale via an earlier form, cr like, crater. Interesting. The, you know, crater, like, uh, especially if you wanted to call it a meteorite. But... That is weird, though, because, yeah, like, the idea that the Grail was a cup definitely wasn't, like, the primary idea. Back then. Yeah, for, you know. I mean, fair enough. Yeah, which is weird. Yeah. But, okay, but he's, like, really trying. He thinks he can find this stone, you know, this sacred stone. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think Himmler definitely saw the broader kind of sociopolitical ramifications of finding such a thing. Though, you know, I think even the documentary, I, I actually maybe not that documentary, but another one I watch, you know, emphasizes uh, how how often the Nazis would uh, fake, you know, um, archaeological evidence of certain things, maybe all the way up to like faking the body of Martin Borman, you know, and things like that. So but it, as long as they could find, you know, some maybe it was less important about finding the stone. But hey, if Otto Ron could find a stone, <laughs> then Himmler could hold it up as this is proof of our glorious ancient civilization that that by this point, I guess, started to worship Lucifer. <laughs> you know, um, um, I mean, yeah, you read did through find, Lucifer's like, court. stones, right? Like that was a thing that they mentioned in the Stanley documentary, which is that like there are like meteorite stones, basically, that when you like uh, spit yeah. on them, they kind and of have them this together. rusty red color. You know, that's yeah, kind of blood -like. I, it's like oxidized iron or rust, yeah. basically. Uh, mm -hmm. There's so they have such a concentration of like iron ore that I guess if you spit on them and rub them together, it 
creates like a red bloodish kind of substance that yeah. you know people used to think was kind of miraculous or magical or something like that. Yeah. In that region. But you know, he he goes like spelunking in many caves, right, around the region and he does find some Cathar grottos and stuff like that, right? Yeah, like and, the cathedral, you know, that the famous wall. room, the cathedral. Yeah, that he found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's all sorts of like crazy, yeah, grottos that he found that were very impressive to him. Mm-hmm. And there was Mount Tabor, which I guess you know had the final, had the castle fortress that was sort of the last stand of the Cathars, right? Mm-hmm. But it's been mostly destroyed, and then like something else is built on top of it, and blah blah blah. But it's uh, it's you know the the ruins of it are still there and i mean there are other towns he mentions you know during the crusades that had like extensive underground cave and tunnel systems to such an extent that like an entire city under siege could flee like in the middle of the night through these subterranean passages and like nobody had any idea where they went so that's something very fascinating about these cathars is like they're subterranean nature like allegedly like they kept survive some of them kept surviving hiding out in the caves for up to like a century or something like so like little bands of them you know persisted and i guess you know the the legend of the rumor goes that the inquisitors eventually just like buried the entrances to some of the caves with stones and just like blocked them essentially Mm -hmm. trapping you know uh these uh cathars in there but or they were kind of afraid to go into the caves and like look for them maybe they'd be yeah uh, you know so yeah they're eventually stamped out now i mean i do think it's interesting that he spends so much time on the brutality of the catholic church in his first book crusade against the grail yeah and you know, identifies them as like the army of Lucifer and <laughs> they were basically going yeah. after these like based pure ones who just, who didn't even believe in war. You know, they were like pescatarians. They didn't have sex. You know, they were the kind of incorruptibles and all this stuff. And like Pope Innocent Third in particular could not abide this, this shit. And, you know, he called up a crusade. And what's interesting about it to me is, you know, like he writes this in 1933, which proves to be like his entree into the SS. And, you know, presumably Heinrich Himmler read this book and was riveted by it. But when you read the parts of like what the Catholic inquisitors ended up doing when they came to Occitania and dealt with the quote unquote, you know, heretics, Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds an awful lot like exactly what the SS would end up doing around Europe, like less than a decade later. And except in this case, they were using like their race science framing to decide who was an intervention or who was satanic or who needed to be wiped out. But like the thoroughness of the slaughter and I think you could use the word genocide in this case of the Catholic church is very similar to like what Nazi Germany ended up doing. So it's just, it's one of those uh, very twisted, I guess, ironies that Otto Braun writes this whole book that's about how, you know, corrupt Rome. And, and he's like, he's not wrong about a lot of things. Like these guys were straight sickos. Yeah. And the methods that they used uh, in their, you know, in their interrogations and stuff like that. And like 
the the true like lack of mercy towards like heretics is really staggering and of course like europeans uh <laughs> kind of repeat such things around the world for the next like five or six hundred years not like the nazis were the first ones to uh to resurrect such brutality but i don't know i don't know what do you think about that yeah about like the the crusades themselves and like what's uh what i mean going they were awful there? uh and they like you know i mean it's doesn't even end like with the like persecution of like uh, cathars at all like the sort of crusades in the baltics like were incredibly awful and like the northern crusades were like incredibly brutal crusaders like ate people <laughs> like you know, they like did they you know, eat people uh, you know yeah there's like definitely stories of crusader cannibalism uh occurring yeah jesus yeah i, I the think the siege oh, of yeah. mara is like a famous story uh, yeah, and so uh, this is also during the period of, like, the founding of the infamous Inquisition. I think yeah. in 1233, and let me see here. I, I highlighted a couple things of just, like, popes being um, sickos and stuff, and he talks about some, some people that were nominated to be, like, in, you know, inquisitors, like, in this region, and, and talks about St. Dominic, who was, I guess, the founder uh, of the Dominican Order, which ran the Inquisition, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he hated so, Jesuits, by the way. I think we mentioned, like, but he, the rancor that he has for Jesuits is truly extreme. Oh, yeah, he uh, really hates yeah. Jesuits. He thinks they're, which is, again is, like, ironic because many people pointed out that, like, Heinrich Himmler almost modeled the SS on the Jesuit order, but, like, a secularized hold on a second. or a cultified. Hold on, Sorry, Oh, sure, on. sure. Just yeah, I'll look up this thing. Okay, I'm back. Yeah, so he, he does mention that, let's see, in 1209 was the first time that a pope had, like, called out for, like, a crusader army. And 20,000 knights and more than 200,000 citizens and peasants, not counting the clergy and the merchants, headed for Occitania, led by the archabbot of Citeaux, the chief of the Christian armies against the Albigensian heretics. And they were followed by, uh, <laughs> like, the description of the army, like, you know, basically they had all these church officials, then the bandit knights with the ramshackle armaments, Robert, no lieutenant, a guy doesn't drink the water, and all the other what's-his-names. Then came the citizens and peasants, and behind them the dregs of all Europe, the ribouts, ruffians, the truans, crooks, and in the temples of Venus on four wheels, the prostitutes, the lords of all nations. I will not go into details. <laughs> that was, hmm. uh, yikes. So then... They massacred, like, the entire city of Bezir in Occitania, mm -hmm. I think, uh, up to 20,000 people. Yeah, this is what happened. On the, on the afternoon of, they sent somebody ahead and were like, give us all your heretics or you will all perish. But then, I guess the priest, one of the priests, I guess, said, like, no, betray our brothers? No. So then they launched an attack and the crusaders were in sight. On the afternoon of July 25th, impatient for their plunder, the ribouts and truans rode around the town, rode toward the town on their own initiative. For the rest of the pilgrims, there was nothing else to do but follow them. The doors gave way. As the crusaders burst in the town, the inhabitants of Bazir, both orthodox and heretic, fled in terror for the relative safety of the two churches. One of the barons asked the grand prior of Citeaux how they could distinguish the heretics from the Catholics. If we are permitted to believe, Caesarius von Heisterbach, Arnaud responded, Caedite eos, novitenim dominus qui sunt eos. Slay them all. God will know his own. 
Okay. Uh, in the houses of God, where priests adorned with ornaments celebrated the mass for the dead, all of the inhabitants of the town were murdered, men, women, and children. 20,000 wrote Arnaud de Citeaux to the Holy Father. Nobody was left alive. Even the, even the priests were burned alive before the altar, and the crucifix, along with the safety from the invaders that it represented, was smashed on the stone slab floor. The town was sacked. With the, while the crusaders were fully occupied with their work as executioners in the churches, robbers devoted themselves to pillaging the town. And yeah, so then they set the entire town on fire and uh, exclaimed, God is with us. Look what a miracle. No vulture or crow is interested in this Gomorrah. The bells melted in their belfries. The dead burned in the flames and the cathedral blew up like a volcano. Blood flowed, the dead burned, the town blazed, walls fell, monks sang, crusaders slaughtered, and gypsies pillaged. So died Bezier, and so began the crusade against the Grail. So, you know, that happened, and it, like, scared the shit out of um, the entire region. But then, and then I think some of the lords tried to, like, parlay with the Pope and be like, okay, like, we won't be heretics and stuff. <laughs> and it yeah. cooled off, like, for a little while. But, I mean, that just sounds like the final 30 minutes of come and see. Like, when the SS Brigade shows up in, like, the Belarusian village and they're all, like, laughing and, like, eating shrimp and, like, burn everybody alive in a church. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. it sounds utterly satanic. Why, why did they smash the cross on the floor? That seems like a weird move for the Catholics to do, especially because the one of the heresies of the Cathars was they rejected the symbolism of the cross and they were known right. for saying things like, I will never use that as a symbol of my salvation. I forget yeah. what they used instead, but it was something, it, it was like a different symbol for Jesus. They, they thought the cross was, I don't know, negative or... Yeah, I forget, I also forget what it was, but... Also that he wasn't a body, he was a ghost. So like yes. why the cross, <laughs> like the cross is uh is misunderstood okay so then yeah. and then in 1233 you know uh, there is a resurgence of uh, well basically the pope the new pope i'm trying to see who it is here the inquisition was officially set up on oh my god on april 20th 1233 um mm -hmm. uh yeah. hitler's mm -hmm. birthday and yeah cover the night date. yeah yeah columbine what is up with 420? Is that an op? I don't know. Anyways, uh, so it was set up in 1233, a date that saw the publication of two bulls by Pope Gregory IX, which assigned the persecution of the heretics to the Dominican friars. Analysis of both papal documents shows that the pontifical sovereign did not foresee the consequences of such an innovation. So he basically like authorizes the Dominicans, like gives them a license to kill or like burn people alive for being heretics and like root them out where it's it's a great purge basically it interestingly they specify that like they aren't actually authorized to kill but only to hand over the heretic to the secular authorities so they can burn them alive which you know clean keeps the hands of the church nice and clean so but uh ron says that you know this task of rooting out heretics in the south of france was almost impossible to accomplish for the Dominicans. Without any obstacles from generation to generation, the heresy had established itself so firmly that it affected all social strata. This meant that the, that the Dominicans had to systematically re-educate no, all of Occitania in the true faith. Therefore, the Inquisitor was not supposed to impress people with fatuousness. His mission was to paralyze them with terror. 
The sumptuous garments, eye-catching processions, and escort of servants corresponded to the prelates. The inquisitor wore the habit of his order, and when he traveled, a few knights accompanied him to protect him and execute his orders. A few days before visiting a town or village, he would send word of his arrival to the ecclesiastical authorities, asking them to convoke the townsfolk at a predetermined hour in the marketplace. Those who obeyed the order were promised an indulgence. Those who did not were excommunicated. The Inquisitor would direct his homily to the congregated population. Speaking of the true faith, whose expansion they had to support with all their strength, he exhorted the town's inhabitants to present themselves to him within a space of 12 days. They were to reveal all that they had learned or heard about anybody who could be suspected of heresy, and for what reasons. Those who did not present such a declaration were ipso facto excommunicated. Those who obeyed were compensated with an indulgence of three years. We can imagine the shock that fell over a parish when suddenly an inquisitor arrived and launched his proclamation. Nobody could really know what gossip circulated about him or herself. Finally, parents were instigated to betray their own sons, sons their parents, husbands their wives, and wives their husbands, as Gregory the Ninth said no. on one occasion. <laughs> so <laughs> is he bragging about that? Like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. So yeah, it sounds again like a lot like the not what the Nazis would end up like. Who's hiding the Jews? Like you know, you got a rat on every, you got a rat on yourself, and stuff. He talks about Toulouse Inquisitor uh, Bernard Gouy, who I guess mm -hmm. was like a particular evil maniac. Who I guess he quotes from Gouy this kind of gaslighty interview that is representative of the tactics that uh, an Inquisitor would use. You know, mm -hmm. where he yeah. basically says, would you like to swear that you never learned anything that contradicts the faith that we hold for the true one? If I have to swear, I will do it. I wasn't asking that if you had to swear, but rather if you like to swear. If you ordered me to swear, I will swear. I don't want to force you to swear. You consider the swearing of such an oath as a sin, and you will blame me if I force you to do it. But if you wish to swear, I will accept your oath. But why should I swear if you do not order me to do it? Why? To free you from the suspicion that you are a heretic. Sir, I do not know how to swear an oath if you do not teach me. If I were the person to have to swear, I would raise my fingers and say, never have I ever had anything to do with the heresy nor believed anything that was contrary to the true faith. As it is the truth, shall God help me. And so, like, he would just do, like, mind games like that and, yeah. like, break people down and yeah. do it. They'll be like, I'll do whatever you, like, please execute me. I'll do whatever you want. And so then eventually, a lot of times, people would just crack under this pressure and be like, all right, fine. Like, I'm a heretic. And then, you know, then they would either get sentenced to, sometimes they get sent to go on a pilgrimage. Other times they would have to, like, be flogged by the priest in a kind of, uh, ritualistic it's just a thing over the course of multiple sundays you'd have to go to every place where you interacted with a heretic and the priest would whip you there and then also the another interesting synchronicity with the nazis uh heretics were forced to wear on their chest and back yellow crosses that measured five centimeters I wide know, and ten. this is so uh, crazy yeah isn't this fucking bizarre yeah like and, and he's yet, laying all this out as yeah. like an evil thing like which is rightfully kind of it it is yes evil. of course yeah and then Pope Clement V added an innovation in 1306 that basically you could torture people well you could torture people quote unquote once but also like you could torture people and then take a break and be like do you confess and then they said no you could continue the one torture so like you basically could torture people like rack and all kinds of other horrible things or like these prison cells, which again, I visited Auschwitz like years and years ago and mm. they had these cells that sound a lot like the Morus Strictissimus, which were like a tiny little cell that were so small that you, you 
had to stand up in it. Like you couldn't sit down and there yeah. was like no light and it was like horrible. And a lot of people would die of like exhaustion. There was even a, uh, I saw the cell of a Catholic priest who uh, he volunteered to take the place of a man who was going to be executed, who had like a family. And so the Nazis were like, oh, you think you're like a good Christian? Would like get in this hole. And they, you know, put him in one of these like Maris Strictissimus type things. And he like miraculously like lived even though they stopped feeding him for like, I don't know, a long time. And now he's like a saint or whatever. Fair enough, you know. But again, another synchronicity with like the, it's like Himmler's reading this book and like taking notes on what the Crusaders yeah. are doing. <laughs> like, yeah, based, like awesome. You know, like if anybody in the modern times like has a vibe of being like a psychotic inquisitor, it is Heinrich Himmler, I would True. say. Yeah. Uh, and who knows if Otto Rahn like knew that that's what he was like fully signing up for was to like give these disgusting ideas to uh, a bunch of absolutely sickos. But uh, okay, I just want to mention the, these, uh, sorry, sicko popes um, <laughs> torturing people. Okay. Yeah, because he mentions a few. Well, first he says, like, the church wasn't satisfied with letting its power be felt by the living. Its cruel hand also extended to the dead. As an example of the condemnation of dead heretics, we must include what Pope Stephen VII did in 897. The vicar of Christ had the cadaver of his predecessor, Pope Formosus, dug up in order to condemn him as a heretic. He cut off two fingers from his right hand and had the body thrown in the Tiber. Some compassionate people managed to fish the body of the heretical Holy Father from the waters and buried him again on dry land. The following year, Pope John IX declared the trial of Formosus void and proclaimed in a synod that nobody could be condemned after death because the accused had to have the possibility of defending himself. Despite this, Pope Sergius III ordered Formosus' body exhumed again in, nine, in 905, dressing the corpse in all papal ornaments. He had it seated on a throne oh, yeah, and solemnly is... condemned again, and then they decapitated it, cut another three fingers from its hand, and threw the body in the Tiber. When the remains of the dishonored Holy Father were pulled up from the river by some fishermen and taken to St. Peter's Church, it is said that the images of the saints inclined to them and saluted Formosus with veneration. Yeah, I remember. Didn't, haven't we what? talked about this before the uh like the trial of pope formosus and the the cadaver uh, synod right that's what it's called i feel uh, like maybe i've heard of it like a long time yeah, ago there's i don't a know famous, maybe we talked about like painting of it which is like really horrifying it's the, all yeah, kinds john of... paul lawrence papa formosa at, at the end the eight, at seventh yeah look up that painting from 1870 of the cadaver synod it's really horrifying <laughs> Cadaver yeah. synod. Yeah, just uh, a. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Just like yeah. the dead pope being condemned. What the fuck? See, is this just like some creepy, ooky, spooky type of shit going on in the Catholic Church? Um, yeah. And then, crazy. of course, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Then we get to there's a really fucked up antidote here about Pope John the twenty second. So like you know right the. I mean, Pope John the 23rd was like in her parents' lifetime. So, but you know, what did Pope John the 22nd uh, get up to? Let's see, under Pope John 22nd, whose successor, Benedict 12th, cleared the heretics out of the caves of Sabarth, a method was used that was enthusiastically imitated by the inquisitors. For reasons unknown, while he was still the son of a small artisan of Cahors, a town to the north of Toulouse, the future pope harbored an insatiable hatred for Hugo Gerold, the bishop of his native town. Once on the papal throne, John lost no time in letting his power be felt. In Avignon, he solemnly removed the unfortunate prelate from all his functions and had him condemned to life in prison. 
but he still wasn't satisfied. Accusing him of having inspired against the life of the Pope, John had the bishop skinned alive and then thrown into the fire. Okay, um, that skinned alive, yeah. cool. Okay, so then, of course, Pope Urban VI had to act in an even more unchristian way. When six cardinals were suspected of conspiring against him in 1385, he had them arrested and thrown in a pit. The methods used by the Inquisition in its trials were applied against these unfortunate prelates. They were abandoned to hunger, cold, and worms. A confession was obtained from the Bishop of Aquilia under torture that implicated the other five cardinals. Because they never ceased to proclaim their innocence, they too were tortured. The only thing their tormentors could get was the desperate auto-accusation that they were suffering just punishment for the evils that they had inflicted by order of Pope Urban on other archbishops, bishops, and prelates. When the Cardinal of Venice's turn came for torture, Pope Urban entrusted its application to a former pirate whom he had named Prior of the Sicilian Order of the Knights of St. John. Urban ordered him to continue torturing the Cardinal until he, the Pope, could hear the cries of the victim. The torment lasted from the early hours of the morning until lunchtime. Oh, this is wild. During the Cardinal's torture, the Holy Father strolled underneath the window of the torture chamber, reciting the breviary aloud so that his voice would remind the torturer of his obligations. But the only thing they could get out of the old and sick Cardinal of Venice was this exclamation, Christ suffered for us. The accused remained in custody in their inhuman prison until the day when Carlos de Durazo, the Lord of Naples and Hungary, tried to free the Cardinals. Pope Urban fled, but took his victims with him. On the road, the Bishop of Aquileia, weakened by the constant torture, could not keep up with the pace of the forced march. The Pope killed him and left his corpse unburied by the roadside. The remaining cardinals were dragged to Genoa and in a deplorable state thrown into a repulsive dungeon. Their situation was such that the town authorities, moved to compassion, asked for clemency for them, but the Pope remained steadfast. Finally, due to the energetic intervention of Richard II of England, Urban had no other choice than to free the English Cardinal Adam Astom, but the four other princes of the church were never seen again. What the fuck? Can you imagine just like Pope Francis like taking out a pistol and just like shooting a cardinal as he like flees Rome from like a, a mob of like angry citizens? Yeah. I mean, maybe you could. Maybe <laughs> you did that in Argentina. I don't know. But like yeah. just the, the depravity of like these popes that at the time were supposed to be infallible, right? I mean, uh, I don't know if the infallibility yeah, I mean, I guess doctrine like, came later. Yeah, their infallibility is like contingent on something. They're only infallible sometimes. They're not always infallible. But the conduct of popes, like historically, is just an incredible tapestry of not uh, infallibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, um, or failings, I guess, is yeah. deep failings. Almost the point. I mean, I get why people felt like somehow like Satan had like infected the church. And like, I mean, people still say it today, don't they? You know, set of Acantus and all that kind of stuff. Um, but eventually I, it's probably not that surprising that I guess the night after Ascension Day in 1242, the world was jolted by the news that 11 inquisitors had been assassinated in Avignone a small town in the outskirts of Toulouse. So that was a thing. Like, basically, a bunch of knights, I think, got together and murdered, like, a whole group of inquisitors. I think some of whom were made saints later, which is kind of funny. So that triggered, basically, this more committed, like, official crusade against them. Um, I think led by Pope Innocent III, right? Yeah. And he eventually, you know 
I mean, all the stuff I just, you know, all the slaughtering, all that kind of shit, did that to the entire, like, Occitania region to stamp out the heretics and, and it killed between, hard to estimate, but somewhere between 500,000 and a million people, maybe, over the span of about 20 years. Damn, one million, that's... Lot for the time. At the population of Europe at that time. Yeah. And extinguished, like one by one, kind of extinguished most of the noble houses that were aligned with the uh, heretics, with the Cathars, you know, and like humiliated and stripped them of like all their privileges and stuff like that. Like, I think he excommunicated one of these guys. Uh, it was one of the descendants of Raymond, Lord Raimondo. It's like one of the Raimondos got excommunicated like four or five times, like again and again. And he would always come back and he kept trying to come to some kind of reconciliation. The other thing Ron notices is that, or Ron noted is that the Pope also legalized the confiscation of all a heretic's property by the church, which I guess then he says like a lot of that wealth was like literally kept by the Pope, which again Mm -hmm. is another synchronicity with the Nazis because one of the overlooked crimes that they committed is, you know, I mean, they the Jewish wealth that they just straight up stole. You know, like in Auschwitz, they had everybody throw all their valuables. They searched everybody for, you know, uh, gold jewelry, things like that, coins um, sewn into their garments and stuff, and would throw it like in a big pile and then go like looking for like treasure and right, yeah, you know, basically took. So it's like, yeah, if you're an intermission, like gold fillings and things, or like have that uh, yeah, they take their, their clothes, yeah. Th- Exactly. They take their gold fillings out, like mm-hmm. every little bit. They were monetizing all of it because these people were heretics and they needed to, you know, be exterminated by the. And even, I mean, God, even the aspect of incineration, right? Yeah. What did they end up doing mostly True, at the, yeah. like, Auschwitz yeah. was yeah. subject them to the fire. And that's that was the. That was the, the dominant method of execution during this crusade was burning at the stake. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, they like uh, would like. Yeah, I think that was like a big sticking point for the Cathars that they like wouldn't, you know, repudiate. They were supposed to like stay to the end. At least that was like in Ron's conception, like a big part of them that they would like never shirk on being Cathars uh, and their principles, even under like horrible torture. Of course, like, yes, you know, some of them probably did but uh, some of them did. But he said the overwhelming majority chose death over renouncing their their faith. Right. I think it's interesting to, like, talk a little bit about, like, uh, sort of the uh, environment or the milieu that, like, uh, Adoran was in, like, while he uh, first was getting started, kind of, uh, in the Pyrenees region. But just uh, before that, mm-hmm. just to, like, clarify a little about the Grail, I think, like, I indicated that, like, the Grail was associated with or, like, that the Grail was identified with, like, the Sphere of Destiny or the True Cross. I think that is, like, a mistake on my part where, or, or, like, a miscommunication on my part where, like, I think that it was associated with them in the case of, like, they were sort of talked about together, like, in a lot of Percival stories. But the Grail, I guess, sort of the the biggest, like, first Grail story is actually by Chrétien de Troyes. Like, this is kind of the most influential beginning of the grail mythology like it really does come out of like medieval romances and there's uh this one writer joseph goring who wrote about the origins of the holy grail the virgin and the grail is a book he wrote about this and his theory is that you know it's very unclear what Cretien is actually talking about when he talks about the grail in this first important grail poem the conte du grail 
but it seems to be like it is, you know, uh, true to its etymology, some kind of platter or plate and but not necessarily like a cup. It's like a a vessel, but like more of a a bowl or something. And then, you know, eventually does become a stone and things like uh, this is like an excerpt that he quotes from from that uh, that grail romance. Mm. Well, they talked of this and that, a young attendant entered the room, holding a shining lance by the middle of the shaft. He passed between the fire and those seated on the bed, and all present saw the shining lance with its shining head. A drop of blood fell from the tip of the lance, and that crimson drop ran all the way down to the attendant's hand. The youth who had come there that night beheld this marvel and refrained from asking how this could be. He remembered the warning of the man who made him a knight, who had instructed and taught him to guard against speaking too much. The youth feared that if he asked a question, he would be taken for a peasant. He therefore asked nothing. Two more attendants then entered, bearing in their hands a candelabra of fine gold and inlaid with Nielio. Uh, Nielo? I don't know what that is. Handsome indeed were the attendants carrying the candelabra. On each candelabrum, ten candles, at the very least, were burning. Accompanying the attendants was a beautiful, gracious, and elegantly attired young lady holding between her two hands a growl. When she entered holding this growl, such brilliant illumination appeared that the candles lost their brightness just as the stars and the moon do with the appearance of the sun. Following her was another young lady holding a silver carving platter. The Graal, which came first, was of fine pure gold adorned with many kinds of precious jewels, the richest and most costly found on sea or land, those on the Graal undoubtedly more valuable than any others. Exactly as the lance had done, the Graal and the platter passed in front of the bed and went from one room into another. The youth watched them pass and dared not ask who was served from the Graal, for he always took to heart the words of the wise and worthy man. So you can kind of see how, like, the lance and the grail, like, are associated here. Um, mm. And, you know, the, uh, like, uh, the blood as well, they're kind of uh, mixed together. And also, like, it's unclear what the grail is. Uh, a little bit later, you know, uh, he also writes, uh, The first course was a haunch of venison, peppered and cooked in fat. There was no scarcity of clear wines of varied quality to drink from gold cups. An attendant who had brought out the peppered haunch of Vettis and carved it before them on a silver platter, and placed the slices on large pieces of flat bread for the two men. Meanwhile, the Graal passed before them again, and the youth did not ask who was served from the Graal. He was afraid because of the worthy man, who had gently warned him against speaking too much, and remembering this, had his heart always set on it. But he kept silent longer than was necessary. As each course was served, he saw the Graal pass before them completely uncovered, and did not know who was served from it, and he would have liked to know. Yet he would definitely inquire of one of the court attendants, he said to himself, before his departure, although he would wait until morning. When he took leave of the Lord and the entire household, the matter was thus postponed, and he set about drinking and eating. So, uh, yeah, he... Uh, so they were passing around the grawl, but, like, nobody was taking anything well, out I of it? Well, I think it was the Fisher King, basically. It was uh, the one who was eating from the grawl, but he couldn't figure out who it was. Yeah. Um, and that has to do with the lance, because the lance, I think, is what kind of wounded the Fisher King. Yeah, he sets out to follow their tracks and comes upon a young woman under an oak tree. You can kind of see the Lady of the Grail stuff coming up here, too. And, like, the idea of the sun. You can see where, where Otterang got some of his ideas. Uh, he came upon a young woman under an oak tree lamenting, even though this isn't from uh, his Percival story that he loves and he sort of uses his, his key to everything. It's some of the same motifs are here, even in this sort of uh, primordial Grail story or earlier Grail story. Percival stops uh, to comfort and aid her. As I speak, she, oh, she's mourning the death of her lover, whose headless body she holds in her lap. So then Percival stops to comfort and aid her, and as I speak, she informs him that his host the previous night was the rich Fisher King. 
He certainly showed you great honor by seating you next to him. And tell me now if, when you sat down beside him, you saw the lance with its bleeding tip, though no flesh or vein be there. I saw it. Yes, on my word. And did you ask why it bled? I never spoke of it. So help me God, know then that you behave very badly. And did you see the growl? Yes. And who held it? A young lady. Whence did she come? From a room. And she went into another, passing in front of me. Did anyone walk ahead of the growl? Yes. Who? Two attendants and no one else. And what did they hold in their hands? Candelabra filled with candles. And who came after the growl? A young lady. And what did she hold? A silver platter. Did you ask the people where they were going thus? Not a word left my mouth. So help me God, that is worse. What is your name, friend? The youth, ignorant of his name, had a sudden inspiration decided his name was Percival the Welshman. And though he did not know, he spoke the truth. When the maiden heard him, he, she stood up opposite him and told him angrily, Your name is changed, friend. How? Percival the Wretched. Oh, unfortunate Percival, what a hapless man you were not to have asked these questions. I am your first cousin, and you are my first cousin. I grieve no less for your misfortune in not learning what is done with the Graal, and to whom it is carried, than for your mother who is dead, and for this knight whom I loved and cherished. Huh. Bizarre. So he gets reproached for not asking questions about the Graal? Yeah, for not asking. Yeah, then people continue to do that, and he failed to ask who was served from it, and that's the whole issue in this story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that happens. We can continue going, I guess. Like, uh, yeah. Well, maybe know. we should talk. Maybe we should talk about like his his sort of downfall. And I mean, you read, I think, more of Lucifer's court. But uh, was, was he getting close? Did, did he actually find anything that is of like legitimate archaeological value around the world or was I, he just poking around for Tula and you know I the don't Graal and think so uh you know what actually I think I will like read this part just to like sum up what we were just doing but then this is from you know Chrétien but then I'll talk about uh Adoran, but then I think it will be good to talk about the Alares Brotherhood and like that sort of background anyway yeah so this will just like sum up like some of the, the like maybe spell some of the confusion around that because I just wanted to like you know clarify like how the Graal like transformed and shape, but I mean, it is an interesting story. But anyway, so again, he encounters a hermit, right? Similar to the Eisenbach story, the hermit living in the forest, right? He asks the way to the hermit's abode, and then he finds the hermit in the forest. Percival enters the chapel and falls on his knees, and the hermit tells him to confess. And he says, Sir, it has been five years since I have known where I was. I have not loved God or believed in him. Since that time, I have done nothing but ill. Oh, dear friend, said the worthy man, tell me why you have done so. I beg God to have mercy on the soul of his sinner. And he says, Sir, I was once at the home of the Fisher King. I saw the lance with the head that does truly bleed. And about the drop of blood I saw falling from the tip of the shining head, I made no inquiry. Since then, to be certain, I have done nothing to make amends. I saw the growl there, but do not know who was served from it. Since then, such heavy sorrow has in mind that I would gladly die. Thus I have forgotten the Lord God, for since then I have never implored his mercy, or to my knowledge, done anything to obtain mercy. Oh, dear friend, tell me now your name, the worthy man said. And he answered him, Percival, sir. At this word, the worthy man, recognizing his name, sighed. Brother, he said, misfortune has befallen you for a sin of which you are ignorant. This is the grief you caused your mother when you left her. She fell to the ground unconscious at the end of the bridge as at the gate, and she died of that grief. Because of the sin you committed there, it came to pass you should not ask about the lance or the growl. Thus evils have befallen you. You would not have survived so long, be certain, had she not commended you to the Lord God. Her prayers had such power that for her sake God watched over you and protected you from imprisonment and death. Sin cut off your tongue when you did not ask why the lance head you saw passed before you never ceased to bleed. Foolish were you not to learn who was served from the growl. The man who was served from it was my brother. My sister and his was your mother. 
And as for that rich fisher king, he is, I believe, the son of this king who has himself served from the growl. Do not imagine that it holds pike, lamprey, or salmon. See, so it's like a trait for fish, you know? With a single host carried to him in the growl, we know he sustains and nourishes his life. Such a holy object is the growl, and so pure in spirit is he himself that his life requires no further nourishment of the host that comes in the growl. For fifteen years now he has been served in this manner, never leaving the room where you saw the growl enter. Now I would instruct you to give penance for this sin. So, you know, that's the sort of story of the immortal Fisher King, and, you know, people know the, the Fisher King story uh, in general, but... I just saw, like, the weird Robin Williams movie. I actually don't understand. Wait, what the there was a Robin Williams King movie is. about the Fisher King? It, well, it's called... I mean, he plays, like, an eccentric, like, homeless guy in New York who... I don't and know. And it doesn't have I, anything to do with the Arthurian Fisher King. It's probably loosely related to it in some kind of... Or like maybe it's, like, a modern, like, update of, like, the classic <laughs> tale where... I forget. I had to watch in like religion class in high school. <laughs> so, which is weird. I don't know. But I don't yeah. remember much about it except like maybe he got nominated for an Oscar or something for it. <laughs> but I don't I don't know what the deal is with the Fisher King or <sighs> Yeah. Uh well, basically a, he's like the keeper of the Holy Grail, but he's like, you know, wounded and he can't sire children or like really stand up and he's kind of paralyzed, but he yeah, is immortal. And I guess it makes sense that the Graal would be like a platter for like salmon and pike and lamprey associating with the Fisher King. But interesting you know, later too on that uh, the, the Cathars were pescatarians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's an interesting know? thing too. Why yeah, just good fish? point. Yeah, it does mm. kind of come back around. But yeah, I guess in terms of like Otteron finding anything, I believe that there was like a weird, like it did kind of end on a weird note that is Lucifer's court kind of ended on a bit of a weird note where he kind of made it seem like he sort of found something. Uh, he I says he got a piece of Delphi Temple freeze. Yeah, he fries. did. I don't know if that was like you know supposed to be like significant. I mean, he had like stones from uh, Monsegur and everything, but uh, yeah, he kind of ends with a weird long rant, uh, as I described it. I don't think it's what the same thing that I, I read before. I think it was a bit uh, different. That was the German. He says the like yeah. he says the twilight of the gods was at the same time the dissolution of tribal loyalty to the gods, heroes, and almighty forces of nature. Only cosmic considerations of ancestral blood can free mankind. The twilight of the blood is the same as the twilight of the gods. As blood loses its spiritual significance, it dries, and likewise the ancestors go silent. Then begins the struggle of everybody against everyone. In place of mythical divine wisdom, a ritual mechanical intellect has assumed its place in the me-addicted world, world of things. Right. Individual freedom is bought with death and burial. These human realities are reflected in the cosmos as the destruction of the gods by, of light by dark powers. What? That? Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I believe that's that, a bro. speech that's given to him. Is it like a ghost or something? Yeah, The, the he, Cathar ghost? I don't think it's a Cathar ghost. He's in uh, Reholt, which is in Iceland. You know, he goes to Iceland because he's, like, very excited about it to, like, be going to, like, Tulu itself. But he's disappointed when he gets there and he's like, it looks like America, you know, like these dead buildings, you know, nothing's trad or whatever. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but here I think he has, like, this weird kind of... Uh, he says, I am spending a very bright night in a house that is an ugly concrete box. There you go. During the winter, it serves as a school. It is 10 o'clock on the bright night of the summer solstice. I am in my room writing. My companions are frolicking downstairs in a large swimming pool, which is fed by hot water from thermal springs. 
Uh, I also enjoyed a dip after a long and uncomfortable trip, uh, and I rather unhappily left the warm water to write these lines. My swimsuit, which hangs over the radiator to dry, smells of sulfur. The sun is high in the northwest. The sky shines in bright colors. A light and hardly noticeable mist hangs over Rekhajdalsa Valley. There is not a tree to be seen. The bleakness of the patchy green fields makes the place look much more dead than it is. I don't think that I could live here willingly. If I were forced to do so, then every bone in my body would soon be yearning for the forests and pastures of my homeland. Several hundred years ago, the law speaker and poet Snorri Sturluson lived here in Reckholt. In a, his warm bath encircled by a large wall is still here, just a few steps from the inn, past a row of miserable peat houses with smoke rising from their chimneys. Did Snorri, a contemporary of Wolfram von Essenbach, Walter von Vogelweide, Pierre Vidal, Pierre Cardinal, write the younger Edda and the history of Norwegian kings, Heims Kringla, in such a hut? On his farmstead, did homesickness and the forgotten memory of his forefathers' ways guide his quill during those long winter nights that were shrouded in icy cold and black as dark, and only now and then were brightened by the northern lights so far from this world? We want to drive past the vicinity of Borg, where Snorri also lived. There he inhabited the same homestead where his ancestor, Egil Skala Grimson, lived 200 years earlier, before some daring Viking seamen took him roving on the high seas to faraway lands. Around the house, the storm is howling and bellowing. I am going down to my companions. It is summer solstice in the land of the Edda, you know, like the, the uh, Norse Eddas. One hour later, the new day soon began as the sun moved closer and closer to the north. I had a look at the Steindor Stadox, <laughs> all right, a place in Iceland. Uh, the play of colors in the bleak stones is spectacular, and the endless expanse of the Langjokul Glacier just behind was attractive and imposing. Wherever I looked, the hues wandered from a soft mauve to a glowing red, and from the brightest white to the darkest black gray. Blah, blah, blah. He saw everything. Uh, we went down to the river, took off our shoes and socks, rolled up our trousers, started across the water. It was so icy that I must have flown to their side. A long hike to the Hogindi farmstead made our blood rush. The mountain was less steep than it appeared. Finally, we reached our goal, the basalt wall, but we were mistaken. Uh, what we had taken for cave entrances were grotto-like niches in the rock where brooks and rivulets ran in cascades down the valley below. At the prettiest waterfall, we rested, facing the sun. Reykholt was below and looked like a toy. We marveled at the A... Oh, my God. The Ajefiagolchul Glacier. Well, I, I mangled it, but I'm not even going to try. It's famous. Who broke the silence first, I don't remember, although a few hours had certainly passed. There is an Indian word, Titakara, I said. It once meant he who finds a crossing. Those men who found their way across a river at a shallow place where others had searched in vain. A Titakara understood that a ford represents a transcendental passage over the darkest abyss that separates man from the ultimate truth, which he can learn only after his death. It is a crossing that poses an eternal question. Can we acquire the knowledge of that dark abyss of the hereafter and cross in spirit to the other side of the river as a way to understand the meaning of our existence? They were people, spiritual pathfinders, who answered this question. Titakara is a word in the ancient Pali language, Ego Buddhism, that could be easily translated as pure one in Europe. I remember my companion's words. I never interrupted him. As the sun rose gently between rose-colored clouds over the bleak heights and water ran down to the valley at Reholt Dalher, where the river widens out into a lake, swans flew into the sky singing. Did the wind create a massive aeolic harp in the niches and clefts of the rock? There were songs in the night of the summer solstice. My companion, who was more Christian than I, said, Christianity is more concerned, sorry, is concerned above all with mankind. 
Either it condemns nature as non-divine or hands it over to non-spiritual, quote-unquote, natural sciences or modern technology. By contrast, paganism was nature itself with real gods. All natural events were the result of the actions of genies or spirits. Uh, hmm. Uh, hmm. Anyway, in that sense, paganism should be considered more pious, insightful, and Christian than the power-hungry and structurally rigid Roman Catholics or Protestants, who are more often than not inspired by Rome or Israel than by Christ himself. Uh, uh, so then he goes on about okay. how often, how awesome it is when there's paganism, and how often it is when your gods are jinn. And just be yeah, the, the church is yeah. corrupt. Ergo, I'm gonna worship jinn. Yeah, like, you so know, paganism like, can, is more Can't there be like a third option of like uh, recognizing the church Islam. is corrupt, but like not worshiping? Uh, Oh, yeah, that's what, yeah, but they yeah, yeah or like a Christian communism maybe like enough. something, so. but yeah, it's just like it's this binary thinking, you know. Um, yeah, it's interesting how, according to Tacitus, the Germans refused to honor their gods with human-like pictures or idols inside closed rooms because it was incompatible with God's greatness. Wow. Again, these people just need to discover Islam. Revert. Although I think uh, if they did, like, uh, you know, they would uh, misunderstand it somehow. Uh, so I feel like. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. I didn't I mean, notice actually. There's a reason actually. why they didn't, I guess. <laughs> there, there were a couple tangential figures that you know popped up in Otto Rahn's life. Um, one of whom, Karl Wolf, who might be best known as like the secret negotiator in Switzerland with Alan Dulles to yeah. like negotiate a separate you know peace. He was an SS general. Did you know that he converted to Islam like at the very end of his life? Karl Wolf did. Wow, no, I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> and one other guy who was like a prominent like wealthy German kind of Nazi occultist guy also like embraced Islam in like the sixties or something like that. Like after like long after the war, I don't know, maybe in a Guinon kind of way. So I don't know. Who was the other one? His daughter. Rudolf. I believe it was Rudolf von Sebottendorf. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who's a German occultist, writer, intelligence agent, and political activist. He was the founder of the Tula society basically. Yeah, wow, so he became he, Muslim. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Uh, he also claimed to be, uh, after his conversion to Islam, a Sufi of the Bektashi order. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, yeah. And he was also a Freemason yes. and yeah. practiced meditation, astrology, numerology, and alchemy. Interesting. I didn't realize that he became Muslim. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, a very yeah, Guaynon-esque. Uh, that's right. He died in Istanbul in 1945. Yeah. Oh, wow. So he converted Bektashi. like before World War II. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I guess. Well, uh, I guess he did most of his like intellectual work before World War II. Like the Tool Society was kind of defunct by the time World War II actually started, right? I think it was. Yeah. Wow. This is an uh, he's he's a whole interesting thing. Like he was connected. He did a lot of work in Turkey, very close to the Termudi family, who were Thessaloniki Jews who were involved in banking and silk trade. They were also Freemasons belonging to the lodge affiliated to the right of Memphis Mizraim. I've heard of that before. This network of lodges was closely connected to the Committee of Union and Progress, which later joined the Young Turks. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. It's interesting Very. that, like, uh, he was a Bektashi. Like, I think that by then, Bektashis were, like, kind of dissolved by, you know, the Turkish government. I'm pretty sure, like, that they, like, Sufism was banned by that time. Uh, maybe he got in like at the tail end um, or maybe he was a member of some kind of clandestine organization or maybe there was some holdout that was like considered acceptable. But yeah, they were pretty heavily stamped out by uh, the Turk. But anyway, yeah. uh, Anyways, speaking but, uh, of the Tool Society, like a interesting like related group is the Polaris Brotherhood, okay, uh, which yeah. I think is important to mention. They come up in the Stanley mm-hmm. documentary 
and they were like very interested uh like in the stanley documentary they some guy i don't remember who it was but uh it might have been uh ladam even but uh, it talks about how basically like during that time, like in the Pyrenees, they were like the intelligence services or the, whatever, what they were called the secret services yeah. of like all these different countries like England you know, or Britain, uh, French, France. Italian. Yeah. Uh, German, of course. And like a lot of those intelligence services were already pro-fascist like at the time. And at the same time, there were societies there like the Tula Society, uh, the Polaris Society or the Polaris Brotherhood and the, the White Eagle uh, which is mm-hmm. like a whole other thing. Yeah, I've heard of them. Before. Yeah, yeah, they were they, the tip of the spear of the the new fascist movement. You could say um, were these like occult groups that were that had deep intelligence services sort of backing, and yeah. often like connections like high society figures as well. There's right. an interesting article that talks about their connections with some of this stuff from uh, that website uh, Ordo Avcayo, OrdoAvcayo.ca. I guess it's a website by David Livingstone. I mean, shout out to Tom from You Can't Win, who actually first showed me this website. It's interesting. I haven't, like, read it fully thoroughly. It's, like, kind of basically a book online, kind of. But, like, the main thrust of the website is basically about how, like, the idea of Indo-Europeans is bullshit and, like, based on, like, some weird esoteric, like, Illuminati crap, just to, like, sort of summarize it. Okay, and I can get down yeah, with he that. says, like, as I investigate, like, he's, he says, when I attended the Liberal Arts College of Concordia University in Montreal, I read William H. McNeil's History of Western Civilization, which mentioned the appearance of the so-called, quote-unquote, Indo-Europeans, who emerged suddenly out of the Caucasus and conquered the known parts of the world. The story seems strange to me. Most nations emerge gradually when they turn to agriculture. These Indo-Europeans had no prior presence in history and burst out of nowhere and supposedly mastered the chariot, though they came from a mountainous region. As I investigated further, I discovered the Indo-Europeans was the politically correct term for the Aryan race, and their existence was merely a theory which was shaped through the influence of the occult, particularly Bible legends of the sons of God and of Atlantis. I learned these ideas derived from the influence of Freemasonry and also the notorious Illuminati. So that's like kind of his tact in all this that like yeah i'm reading his like his just his three part his three volume summary which actually i i do kind of fuck with like generally like one he says yeah it all begins in sixth century bc in babylon with the development of the kabbalah which resulted in ancient mysteries greek philosophy hermeticism and gnosticism forming the bedrock of the occult tradition that penetrated the western world during the crusades culminating in the rosicrucians and the renaissance two the rosicrucians were responsible the advent of Shabbatai Zevi, who took the Jewish world by storm when he declared himself Messiah in 1666. Zevi's followers went underground and emerged in Scottish Rite Freemasonry and the Illuminati when they exercised a profound influence on the Age of Enlightenment. Three, synarchy, synarchism, which, which advanced the rule of secret societies, pushed legends of a worldwide Jewish conspiracy to advance a fascist agenda, which first culminated in the Nazis, many of whom went underground and continued to influence the rise of the right in the United States. Yeah, I mean, especially yeah. the last part of that. He goes on, he talks about mind control, yeah. the New Age, the Third Temple. No, uh, yeah, he has <laughs> chapters yeah. on like MK Ultra, the Council of Nine, JFK assassination, oh, yeah. Circle, et cetera. I see here. Yeah, uh, but one chapter, as I noticed, actually is about the Polaris Brotherhood, which is interesting because usually, like, they're a kind of an obscure group, actually. But uh, and he talks about a lot of the things that are relevant to Adoran. I'm not sure if Adoran himself even comes up in this chapter. No, he doesn't, which is interesting because a lot of it has to do with his interests, but. He says, in Les Secrets des Troubadours, where, like, Adoran got kind of his idea 
uh, of the sort of troubadour stuff from Josephine Peladon, who founded the Order of the Temple and the Grail and of the Catholic Order of the Rose Croix, was the first to identify the Cathar Castle of Montségur with uh, Montsalvash or Montsalvat, the Grail Castle in Wolfram's Parsifal. This identification inspired a wider legend asserting the Cathars uh, possessed, uh, guarded the Grail at Montségur and smuggled it out when the castle fell in uh, 20, uh, sorry, 1244. Uh, an early member of Peladan's Grail Order was the Belgian occultist Emile uh, Dantin, 1884 to uh, 1969. When Peladan died in 1918, Dantin reorganized the order under the name of the Order Rocroix Universelle. In 1934, Dantin became one of the founders of Fudosi, a federation of traditional Rosicrucian and Martinist orders originating from Paupus, Peladan, Stanislaus de Gauta, and the Order Cabalistique de la Rosecroix. Uh, the leading societies involved in Fudelsi were Harvey Spencer Lewis's Amork and the Brotherhood Polaris, uh, who thought of themselves as recipients of the boreal tradition of Thule, or sorry, Thule. The Brotherhood Polaris provided the underlying mythologies that led to the Nazis' obsessions with the topics of Grail and Tibet, and ultimately to the sensationalistic Holy Blood, Holy Grail, published in 1982, which inspired Dan Brown's international bestseller, The Da Vinci Code. The basis of mythology was a reported order named the Priory of Sion, supposedly founded in 1099, which was dedicated to preserving the secret of the Grail. However, as revealed by Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince in the Sion Revelation, the personalities involved in the propagation of the myth were associated with modern synarchist and Martinist organizations who aspired to create a European Union. That was another big dream of Ron's. That like it was. I noticed would that. Would unite yeah. with everything. Yeah, exactly. Uh huh. Build that Gothard tunnel. You know. This empire of <laughs> the end times was to be ruled by the Grand Monarch, prophesied by Nostradamus, and fulfilled the three secrets of Fatima. According to some accounts, Nostradamus' grandfather was Jean de Saint Remy, a Jewish Kabbalist at the court of Rene of Anjou, a purported Grand Master of the Priory of Sion. So, again, the prior sign talks about how it's like basically a hoax. It was all made up, you know, yeah. and it's, like, been kind of adopted. Erm, as, not true. Erm, debunked. But, uh, you know, I mean, I think this idea of, like, I do think the idea of, like, synarchy is interesting and, like, rule by kind of, like, overlapping secret society networks, you know, having an uh, outsized influence. Yeah. You know, on, like, world politics and stuff. Um, yeah, no, I think it is definitely interesting. And I mean, he, uh, you know, he definitely upholds or Livingstone is definitely upholds the idea of, of synarchism as like a real influence historically, not, you know, something he believes in. But he doesn't, you know, believe in the uh, Priory of Sion. Uh, he believes in that like myth as being part of this kind of influence. But well, yeah, uh, just like the, the, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is like kind of a psyop, like I'll always agree with that, you know, the like the misdirection kind of strategy of like some of these secret societies to always be like, um, it's the Jews. Like, you know, like, yeah. oh, go blame the Jews, blame the Jews. It's all them. A lot of projecting, I think a lot of projection going on uh, yeah. with that sometimes where if you look at some of these, particularly, you know, I think uh, Anglo-Saxon type um, elitists, um, but also in France and Italy as well, they're really the sus lords, you know, at the end of the day. Um, yeah. They're the Luciferians. There's some other interesting parts here, just talking about the Brotherhood Polaris, uh, which, you know, this is one of the few, I guess there's probably some uh, other material on them uh, that you can find, like maybe in, in libraries. There's maybe talked about, like, in... Uh, books on the occult revival like in the 20th century or uh 20th century occultism but 
Uh, this is an interesting rundown. Touches on a lot of these themes that we were talking about here. Uh, he writes, uh, The Brotherhood Polaris had emerged in Paris in the mid-1920s, inspired by tales of Agartha, reported by Polish explorer Ferdinand Osendowski. It was probably through Martinus channels that Osendowski learned of the legend of Agartha. Osendowski wrote a book in 1922 titled Beasts, Men, and Gods, in which he tells a story he claims is imparted to him of a subterranean kingdom that exists inside the Earth. This kingdom was known to the Buddhists as Agarthi and was associated with Shambhala. In Osendowski and the Truth, the Swedish explorer of Tibet, Sven Hayden, dismissed Osendowski's claims of having heard of Agarthi from the Mongolian lamas. Eden suspected that Osendowski had derived the myth of Agarthi from St. Yves de uh, Alvedre and adapted it to a story in order to appeal to a German reading public familiar with the occult. Osendowski was told of the miraculous powers of the Tibetan monks. Obviously, you know, the Nazis are super into this too. Yeah, as you mentioned. Well, yeah, one of them, yeah, one of them, uh, like, was the tutor of the, like, current Dalai Lama. Right, yeah. And, um, and there was that whole, like, seven years in Tibet. And, like, it didn't mention that, like, this guy is, like, Brad Pitt's playing a Nazi. Yeah, literally, Jean, uh, Heinrich Harrer, yeah, Heinrich Herrer, I think, was uh, the guy who ended up, like, wow, Dalai Lama, like, your society's so based. <sighs> yeah. I'm sorry. Um, sorry. But, uh, no offense to Tibet, but, like, he's um, a fascist. Um. <laughs> yeah. You know, he goes on to talk about the idea of the king of the world, which is a theme that uh, Gwen on himself brings up, I remember. But and I think we talked about this in our Atlantis episode, this notion of, like, the king of the world, the secret king of the world. So the kingdom, uh, this is what Osendowski, this Polish explorer, says. Or, sorry, he was told this. He doesn't say it. Uh, he was told this, apparently. The kingdom is called Agarthi. It extends throughout all the subterranean passages of the whole world. These subterranean peoples and spaces are governed by rulers owing allegiance to the king of the world. You know that in the two greatest oceans of the east and the west, there were formerly two continents. They disappeared into the water, but their people went into the subterranean kingdom. In underground caves, there exists a peculiar light which affords the growth to the grains and vegetables and long life without disease to the people. Osendowski's king of the world was therefore related to Blavatsky's Sanat Kumara, whom she identified with Lucifer and the fallen angels. Sanat Kumara gained greater prominence when her follower Charles W. Ledbetter wrote that Sanat Kumara was the king or lord of the world and the head of the great white brotherhood of Mahatmas who had revealed the principles of theosophy. Ledbetter and later theosophists like Alice A. Bailey believe that Sanat Kumara came to Earth 18,500,000 years ago from the etheric plane of the planet Venus, accompanied by 30 lords of the flame, etc. So there we go. Thanks yeah, sure. interestingly, you know, he's considered that he might be Al-Khidr, but I uh, reject that. Oh, he even mentions uh, Gwenon's book. He says, while the Agartha myth has no real Asian roots whatsoever, it nevertheless influenced Gwenon in his widely read work, Le Roi du Monde, King of the World, published in 1927 and translated into many languages, in which he supported the claims of Osendowski. Gwenon wrote of a great Hyperborean culture that flourished around the Arctic Circle and of its outpost Shambhala in the Near East and Atlantis in the West. The subterraneous synarchist realm of Agartha and its hidden ruler were the subjects of Gwenon's ruler of the world. According to Gwenon, Agartha represents a spiritual center existing in the terrestrial world, housing an organization responsible for preserving integrally the repository of sacred tradition, which is of quote-unquote non-human origin, and through which primordial wisdom communicates across the ages to those capable of receiving it. According to Gawain, to Gawainon, the Lord of the World is the same as the mysterious figure known as Melch, uh, Melchizedek. Uh, you can, you know, recognize this. The same figure is revered among the Sufis as the great mystic teacher known as Al-Khidr, or the Green One. I don't like it when people, like, defame Al-Khidr by associating him with, like, sus Lord of the World who lives in, like, a cave and is Satan or whatever. I, like... <laughs> 
it's weird. People like I've I've seen people be like, Al Khidr is like you know only uh, Muslims generally associate him with evil and they hate him. And it's like no, like shut up, occultists. Like stop trying to steal Al Khidr. We don't hate him. He's a prophet. Like we love him. What do you t- <laughs> like? You know they just have to make everything like transgressive that they do so, and try to uh, anyway whatever uh, and steal like every like trickster figure from every religion and try to say that like whatever anyway. Yeah. But this gets into the White Eagle a little bit later. So. More would be known about the Brotherhood Polaris had it not been that the Theosophical Society's headquarters in Paris were looted during the Nazi occupation, along with the archives of many Freemasonic and esoteric organizations. Christian Bernadette summarizes that Alfred Rosenberg wanted these materials for his academy in Frankfurt. The foundation for what would eventually become Brotherhood Polaris began in 1908 when a young Italian named Mario Fiel met a mysterious hermit named Father Julian during a holiday in Bagnaia, north of Rome. Interesting how everyone's meeting all these mysterious hermits, like even like... In the stories and, like, I guess in real life. Father Julian provided Fila with some old and withered parchments that contained mathematical operations that would allow him to contact the capital U, capital S, unknown superiors. In 1920, Fiel allegedly made a visit to Egypt where he met another Italian, Cesare Accomani, who called himself Zam Bottiva. Together, they succeeded in making contact with a source called the Oracle of the Astral Force, a channel to the Rosicrucian Initiatic Center of Mysterious Asia. They were also referred to as the Great White Brotherhood. This center was supposedly situated in the Himalayas. Oh, wait, the Great White Brotherhood? Yes. Of the Ascended Master's teaching? Uh, Yes, I think so. That That was the order that the son of Liberian President William Tolbert like very confidently talked about in like a 60 minutes interview that (laughs) he was a member of and it was like I mean he was like he was like educated at Oberlin and was like a gentleman farmer like elite in Liberia and was like talking about you know I believe in the the uh, the great white great white brotherhood of the ascended master's teaching and talks about how they're like seven hierarchies of the world and how you know God does not make many leaders you know he's one of the leaders you know and stuff like that so like even into the 20th century i guess there was like great white brotherhood activity like running around africa recruit almost like the family that's the vibe i get you know like recruiting these people into i'm assuming this is the same great white brotherhood right uh i mean i'm not sure exactly but i mean there might have been multiple great white brotherhoods because you know how these occultist groups are like they yeah. take each other's names like they try to you know, I mean, it, it, this one's connected to, to theosophy, basically. Yes, it is. Uh, the one I'm referencing. So, okay, this one yeah, is so also is associated the with theosophy. I, th- and with I the think OTO. it's the same one. I mean, a lot of these groups have the same idea. There are some kind of secret chiefs somewhere. Like, that's, you know, the what Crowley would say, the secret chiefs that are, like, they're getting directions from. But it is interesting that the Hollow Earth connection, like, in light of, like, the Cathar stuff, where they, like, go yeah. into these caves and things well, like that. Exactly, you know? yeah. exactly. Yeah, like, I've heard that, yeah, all there. the treasures of the yeah. world are kept in the middle of the Earth. Yeah, I'll just skip ahead here a little bit to get to the part that has to do with the Pyrenees. But uh, during, because you get how sus they are, during 1929 and 1930, the Polaris are also said to have made excavations in archival researchers in the region south of Toulouse, which was subjected to the Al Big Gensian Crusade, resulting in the fall of the Cathar Fortress of Montsegur in, for, in 1244, and were reputed to have found traces of Christian Rosencruz's passage through the area. So, you know, like the sort of uh, namesake of uh, the Rosy Cross. In 1931, the Polaris were directed to the Oracle to seek, uh, by the Oracle, directed by the Oracle to seek the lost Gospel of John in the Pyrenees. The Polaris came to a valley in the Ariaga to excavate the ruins of the castle of Lordot with the blessing of its owner, Countess Pujol Murad. So Countess Pujol Murad, you'll remember, maybe mentioned in the uh, Richard Stanley documentary, she would like channel 
uh, the lady of the grail, you know, Esclard Mond, yes, right? The yes, sort of 17th right. century witch lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, sources. So here we go again, like like yeah. landed noble, landed nobility, like literally having like channeling spirits from like medieval times and shit. Yes, I'm sure she wasn't the only one. And then you know that is connected with Magra, who this is a funny quote about him. Magra is an anarchist, an individualist, a sadist, an opium a- addict. He has all the faults. He's a very great writer. You have to read his work. <laughs> that was uh, Le cool. Figaro on him. But yeah, but, you know, he was, as we mentioned before, this person who wrote The Blood of Toulouse about the Cathars. So all these people were like all in the same place around that time when uh, Aharon was there. So he was definitely like interacting with them. And, you know, there's even more like with Amork in this. So, yeah, I mean, I recommend his website, you know, now I don't complete. I haven't read like the full thing, so I don't completely co-sign it, but it has done some interesting work here and he seems basically like on uh Sarat al-Mustakim you know for the most part but yeah like you know the Polaris obviously they saw themselves as polar and like hyperborean in that way and but a weird thing I noticed was that I looked up like kind of their uh official like magazine that they published like the Bulletin de Polaris which published some articles about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that's like how you can actually see some pictures of their old magazine and like the uh-huh. image they used in the cover was like the sort of opaque star of david like you would see in the holocaust or something it's very weird like no lines no inter lines just like oh i see see. yeah yeah kind of weird yeah but also i I know this is polar star maybe stella polaris not spelled the same but if you type in like polaris like the star brotherhood you just get this like sus x-men character and that's like all you can find I couldn't even find information on the society because it's all flooded with like Brotherhood Polaris or something. I don't know. Uh, like, Polaris. Uh, yeah, you got to spell it. Uh, yeah, pola- like it's like Polaris. Polaire. Yeah. Uh, like po- like it's really actually, it's probably Polaire's. more like pol- Polaire. Polaire. Yeah, Polaire. That's how it would be pronounced. Yeah. Polaire. Yeah. yeah Fraternité Polaire. That's probably what you yeah. say. Yeah. Exactly. Not Polaris. So. Yeah. Polaris. I don't know. Like it has an S though. So like at the end. So how do you. But know. the S's are silent. All right, all right. Okay. So, so yeah, it's Polaire. Sorry, not to make fun of the French accent uh, or French people. They're fine. No, no. Um. No.